Secretary Silva, can you please call the roll? Uh, before I do that, good afternoon, directors, staff, and members of the public. This meeting is being held in hybrid format with the meeting occurring in person at City Hall Room 400, broadcast live on SFGovTV and by phone. We welcome the public's participation during public comment periods. Public comment will be taken both in person and remotely by call-in. For each action and discussion item, the board will take comment first from those attending the meeting in person and then um, by those calling in remotely. The phone number to use is 415-655-0001, access code 2484-844-6856. When prompted, dial star three to enter the speaker line. Speakers will have two minutes to provide comment unless otherwise noted by the chair. Please speak clearly, ensure you're in a quiet location and turn off any TVs or computers around you. We thank you for joining us. Uh, places you on item number two, roll call, Director Kahina. Present. Kahina present, Director Hemminger. Here. Hemminger present, Director Hinzi. Here. Hinzi present, Direct, uh, Chair Borden. Here. Borden present. Directors Egan, Lyon, Yakutiel are not expected today. Uh, you do have a quorum. And for the record, I know that Director Hinzi is attending this re meeting remotely under the authority of the mayor's emergency orders. Director Hinzi is reminded that she must appear on camera throughout the meeting and in order to speak or vote on any items. And because we have directors attending remotely, all votes at this meeting will be taken by roll call. Item number three, announcement of prohibition of sound producing devices during the meeting. The ringing and use of cell phones and similar sound producing electronic devices are prohibited at this meeting. The chair may order the removal from the meeting of any person responsible for the ringing or use of cell phone or other similar sound producing electronic devices. Places you on item number four, approval of minutes for the July 19 regular meeting. Are there any additions from board members? Seeing none, I open up to public comments. That's an opportunity for anyone who has to comment on the June, July 19th regular meeting minutes. I have no speaker cards. I am not seeing anyone in the queue online. So with that, we will close public comment. Directors? I'll move, I'll move the minutes. Second. Great. Will you please call the roll? On the motion to approve the minutes, Director Kahina. Aye. Kahina, aye. Director Heminger. Aye. Heminger, aye. Director Hinzi. Aye. Hinzi, aye. Chair Borden. Aye. Borden, aye. The minutes are approved. Places you on item number five, communications. Have none? Okay. Any communications? Nope, I don't think so. Next item, please. Item number six, introduction of new or unfinished business by board members. Directors, are there any items? Seeing none, we'll move on to our next item. Item number seven, the director's report. Director Chumlin, welcome back. Uh, <laughs> thank you. It's good to be back. Um, first up, I'd like to introduce uh, Transit Director Julie Kirschbaum, who will be offering a special recognition and a very special recognition this time. Julie, um, would you like to join us? Um, just the fact that Roger Marenko is here to also share some words about um, our amazing recognition candidate, Ron Mitchell, I, I think should speak volumes. Uh, Ron has spent his career at Muni um, bridging uh, management and operators to really share both the operator feedback as well as his uh, deep, deep ties with the San Francisco community. Uh, we don't have a capital project that Ron hasn't helped improve. 
Um, and every single vehicle that our operators drive around are more comfortable because Ron was the first <laughs> person in the seat testing them out um, and making sure that they not only met the expectations of our operators, but also met the expectations of our customers. Uh, Ron started at SFMTA as a part-time operator in 1988. Uh, he came to us from the airport. Um, he became full-time in 1995, but really started playing this communications role as early as 1994 when he was recruited by 250A to help people understand the operator's perspective. Um, he served for 24 years, um, and he's still coming to meetings, even though he's retired, uh, on the Joint Labor Management Board, um, which is a safety committee um, uh, staffed by both um, the operator union and management. Um, and over my time here, he's been incredibly generous um, in terms of uh, taking me out on test drives, showing me things, calling me up when there are problems, usually before they're bubbled up, almost always before they're bubbled up, um, which, which I'm really grateful for. Uh, Ron has also served on our assault prevention committee. Um, his kind of first love is the trolley fleet because he was at Petrero the longest, um, but he's um, also a huge ambassador for our historic trains. Um, and really has had a hand in almost all of our equipment. So um, I'm really excited to be here. Roger and I are both going to um, uh, give um, some recognitions, but before I do, I wanna invite Roger Marenko of 250A. Thank you, directors. <clears throat> My name is Roger Marenko, <clears throat> president of the Transport Workers Union Local 250A. It takes a lot for me to come to City Hall because City Hall scares the heck out of me. <laughs> a lot of scary decisions being made here and I usually show up when there's something bad happening. But today uh, is a very special day of recognition for Ron Mitchell. A couple of weeks ago when um, Ron Mitchell retired, we had a special ceremony at our local offices and we presented him with a unique gift that no one in our entire fleet has ever uh, obtained. And I wanted to let you guys know that this man, Ron Mitchell, has dedicated more than half of his life to providing service for the city and county of San Francisco, providing safe service, reliable service, dependable service. And every time that our transit operators think of health and safety, they think of Ron Mitchell. Every time that our operators deal with the JLMB programs and everything associated with JLMB, they think of Ron Mitchell because he has spearheaded that project. And although he uh, has retired, like Julie stated, Ron Mitchell is still in the loop in terms of helping us out, constantly improving health and safety for the operators, for the buses, for the service, for the general riding public, et cetera. Everything from procuring new vehicles to having trash cans removed, having trees trimmed, uh, sidewalks um, bulbed out, paintings on the um, uh, crosswalks, everything from street lights to stop signs and anything and everything that you can possibly think of that pertains to health and safety, 
Ron Mitchell is always there. He has attended, I believe, almost every single one of the uh, restroom meetings for the operators, which have absolutely helped secure the health and safety for the operators because, believe it or not, um, without Ron Mitchell's help in terms of procuring these restrooms, there would be a heck of a lot less service out there. Um, so on behalf of the Transport Workers Union Local 250, I wanted to say, Ron Mitchell, thank you very much. Um, congratulations on your retirement. And uh, we hope that we are able to bring you back as a Prop F trooper so you can continue <laughs> your work and your legacy. <laughs> <laughs> Just want to say thank you for those kind words. When I came here, I came here from the airline industry, which I spent over 30 years there. Delta Airlines, starting in 67. And I was able to stay and maintain employment there. Loved it. One of the best airline companies around. Very stringent on service and attitude and morale. The reason I came over, sometimes the airline industry is not too kind. So I said, well, I have a family. That's my daughter right there. Oh. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> my other daughter's in uh, Los Angeles, my wife of 48 years. She couldn't make it today. She had uh, a lot of stuff to do. She wanted to, but it just wasn't working out. I said, no problem. You'll see it on film. <laughs> but aside of that, I uh, came over 19... Took the test in 87, came over, was on board in 88. And I've always wanted to be here. And uh, something about buses and trains, this city in its entirety is something about this city is just unlike any other city. I've traveled to a lot of cities <clears throat> in my work, JLMB, and talked to them. And they always ask, how do you guys do it? You guys got about this much space. But you have all those transit, different types of transit vehicles in this much space. I said, we just do it because we have great operators. And we have a management team that tries their best to make everything work. And we're there to help them out and try to insult all the operators to do their best. Trust is the number one thing that I try to instill in operators. If you don't have trust, then you might as well close the doors. Because if operators don't trust the training or whatever you're saying to them, whatever the outcome, their, their outcome is not good. They're have, you know, we try to maintain some kind of morale, stress relief. Let me say this, restrooms, everything's important, but restrooms is really important. And when we got the restrooms, working with uh, Miss Kirsten McGarry. I always was on her, on her uh, kidding her about her hardest working woman in uh, uh, the MTA. Sorry, Julie. You're <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> but uh, we work great together. When you have a team that you can count on, that everybody works together, even if your idea doesn't come across, it's no they don't shoot you down. 
Okay, that's a good idea. Well, 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 let's not go there. Kirsten was good at that. She never shot anybody down. We'll try that next time. Okay, let's try it next time. But it's been a, it's been a great time here. Uh, but here's some people I would like to uh, speak upon uh, because it's not about me. It's about the 2,000 operators. I want them to be the best. I want them to shine. I want them to come to work. When I first came to work and got behind the wheel, you guys don't know what it's like when you get out there at 4 o'clock in the morning and people see you coming around the corner. Their whole life, their day is going to be good because they see you coming to make that first run. And everything is nice. Hi, how are you doing, operator? You're going to have a good day? I'm going to try, sir. I'm going to try, ma'am. That's what it's all about, pleasing our customers. Here's some people I want to, before I leave here, I want to uh, give a lot of uh, praise to uh, the overhead line crew, uh, Charles Drain and his team, uh, David Chazinski, Kevin Riley, Gene Dubois, John Ortz, and Chris Spain. We have meetings all the time. We try to work out whatever differences in the street, you know, that comes about. I want to thank Gary Chang, who runs the engineering. As uh, they mentioned, the engineering does the procuring. Gary Chang, tremendous team leader. Tremendous team leader. Learned so much from Gary, and I really appreciate him. I wish he was here today. Of course, uh, Kirsten McGarry. I want to thank all the superintendents at the divisions where we have the monthly meetings for their understanding and uh, their approach to making things better as a superintendent of the division and the chairs. They work hand in hand and, I, I, and without them, you know, a lot of this wouldn't be. Melvin Henry, uh, system safety. We talk so much. And we would just have giant confabs till, oh, we've got to go back to work. I don't know, Mel, you've got to go back to work. <laughs> but we have these tremendous talks, discussions that is meaningful that I could take back to either Julie or I could take back to Roger in the union, get them to understand what things are all about. I want to thank uh, Rick Lobsher, MSR. Rick and I, we have lunch. We talk about everything under the world. We talk about all the stuff that we would like to see happen. I am a member of the MSR group. And uh, I'm always uh, patting him on the back for all the good work he's done. One of my real favorites, Angelo Fogoni, the godfather of schedules. He's, <laughs> that man taught me everything about schedules. And I sit there like a nine-year-old and just look at him, you know, and say, really? Okay. But he's one of my deep friends and I, and I, a person who has passed on to better, he took the last bell, I think, two years ago. Harry Jensen, who was the superintendent of maintenance, taught me everything about traction motors, mechanisms, not just trolleys, coaches, uh, LRVs. He taught me everything. We sit and we would, you know, 9 o'clock at night, we're still sitting there talking. 
he'll be missed. Harry Jensen. Larry Martin, uh, passed on to glory, was the uh, executive vice president of the TW, of the TWU. He was the East, uh, West Coast uh, representative, vice president for the international. He pulled me by, you know, told me, that I want you to do this. I, I said, Larry, I'll try. No, you're not going to try. You're going to do this. And he was very influential in city politics and things like that. So in closing, what I'd like to see is the board, Chair Borden and the board, to get closer to the operators, because you need them. We have operators traveling sometimes 150 miles one way to come to work. And a lot, of, a lot <laughs> I can't even imagine. I'm, all my stuff is in the city. I can't do it. I, 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 you know, that's a lot. Please, whatever your decisions are, make sure that the operator, your, your thoughts with the operators in mind, please, because life is not like it was 30 years ago when I started, when, when the furthest point probably was Vallejo. We're talking Yuba City, we're talking Patterson, we're talking Merced, we're talking Cirrus. We're, you know, it, it's, it's, they want the American dream, but they got to go further out to get it. So please, in your decision-making, please consider the operators and think about them as you make your decisions. I know it's tough. Jeff and Julie have a tremendously hard job trying to please a lot of people as well as the board. It's tough. I've gone to many meetings here in City Hall and watched you all in action. It's tough trying to please a lot of people. Uh, and just remember my last two things. Muni Railway system is the blood of the city. It flows through the city as the bloodstream. Our police protects us. Our firemen rescues, rescues us. And Muni is the other essential of moving us. Please, just, just whatever you can do to make their life better. It is so important. And with that, I'm going to close. I appreciate this. I'll remember it. It's so nice to get this. So nice to be thought of. And I'll never forget it. I'm 73, and I'll never forget it. Lord hopes I live some more days to remember all of this. I'm pleased. But please, it's not about me. It's about the operators. I just want to thank you. My name is Ron Mitchell, and I'm a proud operator. Cap number 1344. And I thank you. That is the most beautiful speech we have ever heard, I have to say. I want to thank you for your multitude of contributions. I don't think I have enough time to thank you for all that you've done. And the fact that you take this day about you to honor all the other operators, it is so tremendous about who you are and what your contributions have been to this agency. You know, it really resonates with me as a regular daily Muni rider. When I see that bus coming, I smile. I feel sad when someone's running and they're pushing the button as the bus is pulling away. I know that their day has been made worse because they just missed the bus. 
I love all of the work that everyone does in this agency. And I know so many people are so dependent during this pandemic. It became so critical what you guys, the operators, did showing up every day, making sure our essential workers, like yourselves, putting yourselves in harm's way and sacrificing being there, meant everything. But all the different things you've done in the agency around safety, bathrooms, I remember when I, being on the planning commission and the arts commission with the bathrooms stuff, it's just unbelievable because it's something I don't think most people even thought about. Where do people go to the bathroom when you drive a bus all day? I mean, it's just, those, that's a, an essential human need, but we hadn't done enough to step up in that area. So I want to thank you for your work in that area. I love the fact that you've done every single mode of transportation. I've taken every single mode and I take every single mode. I, I have been throughout my entire time in San Francisco, transit dependent. I love taking transit, I prefer it first and foremost. And I love my operators and I always try to make sure I say thank you when I'm getting off. So I want you to know that this board is dedicated. In your honor, we are gonna make sure we do everything to make sure that we get closer to the operators. We're gonna take your words very close to our hearts and make sure that we do that because you are the lifeline and the lifeblood. I always say at the graduations to our new operators that you are the front line. For most San Franciscans, they encounter Muni employees. That's who they encounter on a daily basis. And their day is made better for that. So thank you so much for everything you've done, everything you continue to do. I, I, I wish that you weren't leaving us. I hope that you stay around and stay engaged. And I look forward to seeing you at many things and us getting you involved in other committees and ways because your contributions will live on forever, but we'd love to still have you around. So thank you, thank you so much. I don't know thank if any you. other directors I, I are. Promise. I promise. <laughs> and, uh, Talk about the JLB. It's no joke. <laughs> I just wanted to show you the JLB uh, letter of commitment, 1986. I will wow. also. <laughs> that document that he presented, by the way, is the original. Oh wow! No copy there. Make sure we talk in the microphone if you are talking because people won't know what, what um, we're saying because they can't hear and that they can't catch it on the closed caption. One of the greatest challenges that we had was who would fill in the shoes for Ron Mitchell and there was nobody that could and we then found Ms. Alina Galloway who has been working side by side with Ron Mitchell for many, many years. When it comes to health and safety, she's always been there. Um, this is like the Batman Robin duo right here. You can't have one without the other. And so it's a great honor and privilege for us to be able to welcome Alina Galloway as our next JLMB facilitator. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> Very quickly, hello, my name is Alina Galloway. Um, I have been taught by Ron Mitchell and continue to be taught by Ron Mitchell. I'm so proud and um, I aspire to walk in the path that he has walked in. Um, I hope people see me for the job that I do and my personality. However, I cannot, <laughs> I cannot step in his shoes. But um, thank you so much, Ron Mitchell, for the work you have done. It has been a wonderful journey and we have all um, been better for it. And. Hopefully, 
he will be um, hired as an F trooper, so he can continue on. We're calling him a consultant now because we don't want him to go. <laughs> so um, the areas where I my expertise lands us and where it leaves off, he picks up. So thank you so much, and thank you for honoring him today. And thank you, and we look forward to working with you more closely. Director, I know some people wanted to say other things. <laughs> yeah, sorry, honestly, like, I, I can't follow Gwyneth because she, she said it so eloquently, but thank you so much for your service, Ron. It's clear that Muni is better because of you, and it's so essential for us to focus on our operators first, and thank you so much for reminding us of that. The different things that you've championed for the operators has made sure that you know our our first touch with our customers are authentic, are real, and are reliable. And it takes folks like you that are selfless, that that lead with humility to inspire leadership from here on out. And so I, in addition to all the wonderful things Gwyneth said, I also want to really appreciate your your focus on ensuring that there is a pipeline of leadership amongst the operators, that there are folks that know how to exercise their agency as well um, and demand you know, better services for themselves. And so we are here committed, as Gwyneth said, to make sure that we could do our utmost to honor that challenge. Um, but I just you know, wanted to echo all the wonderful words that have already been said about you, but just thank you so much. And I do hope that you stay engaged with the agency. And there is a way for us to make sure that you know, future generations of operators of, of leadership in, at the MTA, at the agency, can learn from your example and um, also learn from your wisdom. Thank you. Thank you. Director Hemminger? Well, uh, I'll say I certainly can't top your speech, and <laughs> I, I can't top our chairman's speech either. Uh, but I would like to shake your hand. <laughs> I know, it's just a happy, sad day. <laughs> So thank, thank you. I think that concludes this item. But thank you so much. And we look forward to seeing you around. We're not, not letting you go. <laughs> thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, sir. Gwyneth, will we have time to take a picture with? Uh, oh, sure. We're going to take a picture. Can we take a picture? Yeah. <coughs> Let's get a picture with them here. Sorry, we're doing a little out of protocol here, but... <laughs> Let's take a picture.
I don't know if any other part of the meeting will be as nearly as uplifting <laughs> as what we just experienced. Director Tumlin, you have a tough time for the rest of the meeting. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to be able to match that. Um, so we're going to, um, uh, I'm going to do a slightly different director's report today. I'm going to cover um, three topics in a little bit more detail than I usually do. One is uh, an update on autonomous vehicle testing in San Francisco. The second is our preparation for back to school. And the third is a brief uh, racial equity uh, and belonging update. Um, so as I think many of you may know, um, a couple of years ago, the Transportation Authority, the SFCTA, acting as the Treasure Island Mobility Management Agency, uh, started putting together a partnership uh, in order to test autonomous vehicle shuttles on Treasure Island in order to see do these actually work? What are the contexts in which they work? Uh, might they make sense anyplace else in San Francisco? And how can they support the larger muni system uh, driven, uh, as I believe they will always be, by actual human operators based upon what we're finding from other autonomous vehicle testing that we'll talk about later. So the idea is that there would be a free shuttle on Treasure Island that would be very low speed and autonomous, connecting the 25 bus throughout the island and connecting parts of the island with other parts of the island. So the SFCTA uh, has put out a request for proposals that's currently being reviewed with contract schedule, uh, contracting scheduled for uh, October. Um, and if we find a vendor that actually works, uh, the service would begin starting around the spring of 2023. Um, We'll learn for about two years and then figure out, does this actually make any sense at all? Uh, and make a decision about how to serve Treasure Island uh, better in the future. So I wanted to give you that update. But more importantly, I wanted to update you because it's been in the news a great deal about autonomous vehicle passenger services in San Francisco, particularly the actual delivery of passengers that Cruz has started to do um, here in San Francisco. Um, so as a reminder, the city currently has no regulatory authority over autonomous vehicles. That is held by the California Department of Motor Vehicles, or the DMV, and the California Public Utilities Commission, or CPUC. For quite some time now, the city has been engaged in conversations with the CPUC uh, around our concerns about autonomous vehicle testing um, here in San Francisco. Uh, we've been coordinating closely with the police department and the fire department as well in this comment. Um, and uh, our focus right now is about the 30 crews autonomous vehicles that are doing operational testing uh, using an overnight commercial deployment permit. So they're basically picking up and dropping off passengers from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. in the northwest corner of the city. Um, we have some specific concerns with Cruz's current operation. So firstly, it is our finding that Cruz has designed its passenger operations in a way that creates known hazards for many road users, particularly people with disabilities, cyclists, and pedestrians, because the Cruz autonomous vehicles are generally not picking up and dropping off in the, at the curb. Instead, they are stopping in traffic in the street in order to let passengers off and bring passengers uh, on board. Cruises also, when it runs into trouble, rather than pulling off to the side of the road, cruise vehicles simply stop in the traffic lane. Um, we are also concerned that under California law, 
Um, the police cannot issue moving violations to driverless autonomous vehicles um, that violate the rules of the road. There's simply no, nothing in the California codes that allows police or anyone to enforce violations of the vehicle code um, by autonomous vehicles. So the city has been asking uh, for crews to uh, respond to these issues before moving forward with um, expanding their service hours or the number of vehicles or the service area. Um, the commission nonetheless approved the commercial driverless deployment permit uh, for evenings without setting any clear thresholds for when service expansion would require new commission approval. Um, since the CPUC approval, there have been several reported incidents where multiple cruise vehicles essentially bricked in the middle of the street for a very long period of time. Um, multiple vehicles across the city all at the same time, um, which illustrate that cruise autonomous vehicles are not just cars, but are instead part of a larger system that relies upon strong human support, including staff who retrieve immobilized vehicles or figure out what the vehicle should do when it encounters something that it hasn't encountered before. So the Department of Emergency Management has received many 911 calls, but Cruz has not notified the city about these bricking incidents um, or provided us with relevant data to understand how often is this happening, where is it happening, how long is it happening. Um, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration is also investigating a June 3rd collision on Geary Boulevard that appears to be the kind of crash that driving uh, autonomous technology is designed to avoid. Uh, but we have not yet received any word on NHTSA's findings. Um, that incident also resulted in some personal injuries. We've been meeting with Cruz, and I have to um, acknowledge that Cruz is operating in good faith and meeting with us uh, to understand our concerns. Um, and we have reported the incidents of disabled vehicles to state and federal regulators. Um, the volume and variety of concerns that we're facing, though, highlights the need for regulators to partner closely with San Francisco and really with other cities um, that are having actual autonomous vehicle deployment to ensure that AV passenger service can deliver on the, the industry's safety promises before they deploy at scale. It's also worth noting that um, Cruise and Ford um, are seeking approval from NHTSA to deploy new automated passenger vehicles that will have no human driving controls whatsoever, so no steering wheel. Um, and last week, NHTSA opened public comment on these proposals. Um, we are continuing to be strong partners to both the state and the federal government, being the place in the world that is currently experiencing the greatest volume of autonomous vehicle testing um, on its streets. So wanted to provide you with that update. Uh, we are working hard to try to make sure that um, autonomous vehicles uh, that allow private companies to profit off of the public right-of-way also serve the public good. Um, next, I want to talk about back to school. This has been a big area of focus for us as we've been rebuilding the Muni system. Uh, before COVID, um, Muni carried about 29,000 of uh, the San Francisco Unified School District's 56,000 uh, students uh, to school every day. 
Um, we know that we are a primary way that uh, kids get to school in San Francisco, and that's been a big part of our thinking about service restoration. So the service changes that we implemented in July um, very much had connectivity uh, to schools in mind, uh, really for all the lines, but particularly lines like the 43 uh, Masonic extension um, to uh, the Marina District and beyond. Um, and we now have um, at least one, and in most cases, a couple of lines serving every single elementary, middle, and high school in the San Francisco Unified School District. Um, we've also restarted, or will be restarting, uh, when school starts, um, school trippers, um, which are designed to deal with the very, very peak loads that occur uh, in the, uh, at the morning and afternoon bells. Um, and this summer, we've also been working on a whole variety of safety enhancements at schools all over the city, dozens of schools, refreshing signs, refreshing uh, curb painting, uh, doing additional traffic calming. Um, we've also uh, brought on the 20, 21 new uh, Muni Transit Ambassadors um, that are in training right now, um, and they will be dedicated uh, a lot to school routes uh, once school is back in session. Uh, we've also rebuilt the crossing guard program. We've got 175 crossing guards covering 106 schools and 154 intersections. And we'll be returning with in-classroom programming for our Safe Routes to School program, um, helping kids all over the city figure out how to safely uh, walk, bike, roll, uh, and otherwise get to school. Um, and naturally, all of this is building upon the extension of the free Muni for All Youth program, which of course is available uh, to uh, youth without uh, need to get any special pass or permit, um, just show up and ride. Um, then finally, I just wanted to update you, um, our Office of Racial Equity and Belonging um, has been um, significantly expanding its programming. Uh, in addition to working on a lot of internal uh, uh, work to implement the Racial Equity Action Plan. We've also been doing a lot of community-based work, um, including a, uh, about 150 staff participated in a, an intensive dignity-infused community engagement essentials training. It was a three-day training, half day each, um, that included um, really powerful and practical tools um, for integrating racial equity into all of our service work. Um, the team has also been doing Fourth Friday monthly events, um, engaging with staff uh, on the agency's racial equity action plans, um, including teaching uh, racial equity impact assessment tools for all of our programs. Um, we also uh, recognize the 32nd anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act uh, with a series of events uh, about uh, how, um, uh, how uh, the disabled community um, experiences accessibility, ableism, um, equity, and belonging. Um, and then finally, uh, as most of you know, uh, last year uh, San Francisco was the first city uh, in the country to recognize Transgender History Month, um, in part out of recognition uh, of the 55th anniversary of the Compton uh, Cafeteria Riots, uh, which occurred uh, in 1966, uh, right here in the Tenderloin, one of the first very strong public responses uh, where uh, transgender people and drag queens fought back against police brutality um, and sparked a movement for liberation for all of us. Um, so we've uh, been hosting a variety of events uh, honoring Transgender History Month and the unique role that San Francisco has played uh, in, uh, in, in uh, fostering equity and uh, liberty for all. Thank you so much.
Thank you. And I know that uh, Director Hinsey has a question, so we'll get to, we'll, well, after her question, we'll, after some questions, we'll get to the public comment. Um, Director Hinsey? Thank you, Chair Borden, and thank you, Jeff. I just had a few questions. I think one on each of your areas. On autonomous vehicles, I'll just start by saying that I, I think we have one of the best teams in the country working on autonomous vehicles. Like, um, having been in the disability community, they've been working with me a great deal since I've been on the board. Uh, since I've been on the board, and since uh, before I was on the board. But my question is, when we have these instances where there is a drinking and a malfunction, there's basically a mass malfunction of the of the um, of autonomous vehicles and they potentially cause you know harm to folks and personal injury do we have any recourse at all other than just to tell our regulators that these happened or what what what's our sort of protocol there <laughs> um at the moment we have effectively no recourse um, we do not have the ability to cite uh, vehicles that are violating the vehicle code. Um, we don't even get any data or information about when these incidents happen. For the most part, we have learned of these massive autonomous vehicle shutdowns in San Francisco through the media or through 911 calls from roadway users who've been trapped uh, between multiple autonomous vehicles that have locked down. So this is, these are reasons why our complete lack of regulatory control and the lack of data or basic reporting that we're receiving, um, these are already creating significant problems for the streets of San Francisco. And as the fleets expand, these problems will grow significantly. Yeah. Yeah, I think at least speaking for myself, I would be in favor of doing all the advocacy we can at least to get some recourse on our side as far as what to do. But anyway, I'll leave that conversation to maybe our colleagues that we can engage upon in future hearings. Um, on the back to school, um, thanks to all of our school teams for doing such great work. I just want to make sure we are in communication with SFUSD and showing the free meeting program and trying to get that out there. How's our communication with SFUSD been? Because I know that that's been a uh, something that we've tried to improve upon in, in the last couple of years. Yes, we've been deeply engaged with SFUSD. Um, as you might imagine, uh, while SFMTA has faced some significant issues over the last two years. Um, staff at the school district have faced far worse than we have. Um, right. And so part of the challenge has been simply the understaffing at the school district um, and their focus on uh, issues other than mobility. Um, so we have uh, taken it upon ourselves to do the necessary work um, in order to make sure kids can get to school. Um, we've been hopeful, um, we'll probably not be terribly successful in terms of thinking about um, 
staggering school start times in order to reduce the extreme peaking uh, for the morning and afternoon commutes, um, as well as helping the school district in thinking about their school assignment policy um, so that um, the district meets its racial equity goals without creating uh, very, very difficult transportation burdens uh, for uh, kids to get across town uh, in order to uh, create the kind of balance that the school district is seeking. Mm -hmm. Thank you, that's all. Uh, that's all very good information. And uh, it's really nice tell you we, we have a blog post out or two around uh, back to school. Uh, and lastly, on the Office of Racial Equity, I had forgotten to mention in New Business that I was actually a panelist on uh, the ADA celebration, How Do You Identify? And I just wanted to give kudos to everyone that was involved in organizing that, particularly our San Francisco fellow who moderated the, the panel, did a fantastic job. So just to give kudos for that. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Dr. Hinsey, and I know Dr. Heminger had a question as well. Thank you, Madam Chair. Uh, Jeff, I wanted to double back on the autonomous vehicle question, and maybe if I ask the question in a different way, I'll get a different answer from you. <laughs> I don't know. But it just, it astounds me that we don't have some way to shut this down. Um, you know, under her emergency authority, the mayor shut down huge swaths of the city and economic and academic activity. Um, and she did so to protect public health under her emergency powers. Doesn't she have similar powers when an entity is out there creating uh, a safety hazard for our citizens? Uh, I will defer that legal question to our deputy city attorney. Good afternoon, uh, Director Stephanie Stewart, deputy city attorney. Um, Director Heminger, that's not something that I'm aware that our office has looked into particularly, but I'm not, a, I am not currently aware of the mayor having additional authority under her emergency power to protect health and safety to expand that in the AV realm. Um, that, that is something that we could look into, but uh, I, well, I, I'm look, not currently I, I aware would of that suggest authority. You ought to look into it, and there's always a first case that establishes uh, a legal principle about whether we have that authority or not. Um, obviously, I, Jeff, I think you're doing everything you can within the authority you think you have, but if you might have a little more than you think you have, I think we ought to try to find it. My, my recollection when we investigated this very topic two years ago was that we had no recourse and we, we have been fighting the California Public Utilities Commission through our lawyers on this topic for um, several years now. Well, and it's almost as if we're in a situation now where it's going to take some very significant and deadly incident to, to maybe galvanize attention about this because this is happening in the dead of night. Um, I see these things running all over uh, my neighborhood. They mostly have drivers though, right? What we're talking about here out on TI are non-human driven vehicles, right? So on Treasure Island, I just want to be clear. So that is a simple low speed shuttle capped at 15 miles an hour that'll be offering 
driverless passenger service. So that's service. similar to what Contra Costa That's right. Exactly. What's been operating in the Got Bishop it. Ranch parking lot for a couple Got of years. It. We'll be testing that on Treasure Island. We don't really have concerns about that. We understand that technology, and, uh, and because it's operating at such a low speed, we are not terribly concerned about the safety implications. Uh, plus, there will only be you know, a couple of them. What we are concerned about is right now we have only 30 fully autonomous driverless cruise vehicles running around your neighborhood at night that are already creating significant traffic problems even when there are only 30 of them. Um, and those vehicles we have no, no authority over whatsoever. But on Treasure Island, we'll actually own the vehicle. We'll be managing it. We can make sure that it's working well, and if it doesn't work well, we will take it out of service. For these private companies that are operating on our streets, not only do we not control them, we don't have basic data about when they're creating problems on our streets. So to the extent that we're getting information, it's from third-party sources. And that is also deeply concerning as we want to partner with industry to uphold the promise of autonomous vehicle technology while minimizing the unintended negative consequences. Well, to the extent there was some legal exploration of options here uh, some time ago, it'd be helpful uh, for me at least, perhaps my colleagues as well, just to see what you came up with and, and see if there's any possibility of revisiting it or... Yes, we'd be, we'd be happy to come back to with a more detailed presentation. Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you. Are there any additional questions for the director before I open it up to public comment? Seeing none, I'll open it up to public comment. I do have a couple of speaker cards. I'm going to read off some names. Alita Dupree, Patricia Vahi, Flo Kelly. Uh, Marina Calhalla Neighbors and Merchants and Pads, which is a combination of 22 neighbor and business associations. Um, first of all, because it's on your uh, agenda of Vision Zero, I'm only going to mention one. The 30 Stockton that goes into Mason Street when it comes back out, you have to change the, the, put it back on the wires. There is no reason why you have to do it in the middle of Chestnut Street. The last stop is Divisadero. They can stop at Divisadero, put them up, but right now they're backing up traffic while they get out and put them back up and the, the wires back up. There is no reason for, for that, that to be at that spot. Uh, number two. The 43 Masonic, bring it back as fast as possible. I have 200 senior citizens that are now housebound because you stopped it. Number three, pu public safety. We're having a problem with the bikes in front of Walgreens at the objection of Walgreens, the neighbors on the block, and 30 of adjoining neighbors. Uh, it should never have gone in. There was an incident two weeks ago where it was hard for the police, could not just jump out because they had to run around the bikes to get into the building. So we've got some problems there. We want them removed because we think it's a very big health and safety hazard. Uh, we didn't want them in the first place. We asked to put them in the Pierce Street garage because it's empty all the time. And it would be a perfect place right in that ground floor. Is that it? No, I've got 19 seconds. Number three, senior rights. Uh, we asked for the buses from Van Ness to Fillmore 
to go back to their regular stops because our seniors are having to walk up to four blocks to get to a, a bus. And this is Thank you, Ms. discrimination. Your time is up. And I would love for you to talk to me, Mr. Tomlin. Have a meeting with me. Thank, thank you. Next speaker, please. Um, thank you again, uh, Chair Gwyneth Morton and members. Uh, Alita Dupree, for the record, my pronouns are she and her. Uh, interesting uh, report today. Let's talk about two things. Uh, I, I believe in autonomous vehicles. I hope to use them someday. Uh, we have a nationwide driver shortage, but also autonomous vehicles offer me the prospect of a discrimination-free transportation service. So whenever we look at people who've been discriminated on transportation, that discrimination was perpetrated by humans. So I believe in the possibility where I can get into a vehicle where somebody isn't going to judge me because of who I am. So uh, I think these problems can be solved. And we can look at the media, but you can't always believe what you hear. You can't always believe what people say. You don't have to believe what I'm saying. So I ask that anything you do be investigated and see what is really happening out there. Because I have to think about what I hear in the world. So let's make sure that the information that we get is credible. And uh, I think about this Office of Racial Equity, Belonging, et cetera, and I appreciate your mention of Transgender History Month. I ask, though, as we do our equity work, that we not be hidebound by definitions. Because as a person who does not particularly meet definitions, if we predicate our uh, equity work on definitions, means I'm excluded by default. But I ask that this equity work does not exclude people who are different, who, who quote, fail to fall within definitions. I may be different, but I'm a person just as much. Thank you. I have cards for Flo Kelly, Leslie Sheehan, Susan Ciutat, and Paula Katz. I'm sorry, that was for number nine. Chair, that's all I have for speaker cards for this item. I'm sorry. So for number seven, we're on item number seven, and the only speaker cards I had were for Alidu Dupree and Patricia Vahi. We'll be calling number nine soon. So, yes, we're not yet on that item. They were item. still on the director's report, or we just did the presentation. Sorry, it's confusing for everyone I know. Chair Borden, I do have uh, speakers queued online. Please, go ahead. Moderator, first caller. Hello, my name is Michael Petrellis, and I'm calling about the director's report and what's missing from it. I am disappointed that Mr. Tumlin did not include any information on what is happening with the F car line from the Castro. Uh, specifically what is happening, if anything, on replacing the muni shelters that were dismantled back in June. There's no signage 
at these um, stops, which are heavily used by um, tourists and locals uh, waiting for the F streetcar. And um, I'd like to know why the director has not given an update about when these shelters will be replaced. And also, uh, he mentioned nothing about whether each stop on the F car line will have that um, readout next bus, uh, or in this case, you know, the next streetcar. It's really important that um, uh, that information be available at the new shelters that will be built uh, on those islands in the Castro and on Market Street. So the question again to Mr. Tumlin is, um, why didn't you give an update on this? Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Hello. Good afternoon. This is Barry Toronto. I first wanted to uh, wish uh, Ron Mitchell the best of luck in his retirement. I think procuring uh, bathroom access for the muni operators was probably one of the top priorities, especially uh, for drivers uh, who have been working a long time uh, during their shift. I wish we had the sim uh, Ron Mitchell working in the MTA to help the cab drivers find bathroom access because a lot more and more of the hotels are requiring key cards to have access to the lobby bathrooms. And it makes it difficult, uh, particularly at the late night hours to find bathroom, bathrooms uh, access. The next thing is um, I want to applaud Jeff Tumblin and his staff and the city attorney's office have prepared wonderful documents, have expressed logical arguments and have been ignored largely by the CPUC regarding the problems with the, uh, with the autonomous vehicles and he, they, their, their, their warnings and their, and their concerns have gone, uh, have gone unheeded and more action should be taken. Uh, first, the 10 p.m. to 6, 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. hours are being ignored. I've seen them in the evening hours. I've seen them in the morning hours. I've seen them during the middle day hours. They are not adhering to to those particular hours, and they are not just working in certain seconds. areas of the city. I urge you to actually report this to the DMV, the CPUC, and the other agencies that oversee these autonomous vehicles who create very dangerous situations. I don't know if the vehicle involves parking fines, but you should issue them a parking ticket. Follow them everywhere and just give them a parking ticket every minute you can. They are, they are atrocious, they are annoying, and they make work, driving around the city very difficult. Thank you very much. Thank you. Next speaker, please. I, I accidentally pressed in for this number. I'm waiting for number nine, so thank you. Next speaker, please. Yes, uh, Kurt Nelson here. I'm a former software engineer at Uber. And uh, I've, with the autonomous cars as both a cyclist and pedestrian, uh, even before the new permits were issued for completely driverless operation, I know in the lower height they constantly circle. Uh, for example, today when I was eating lunch at Omar and Walmart, Waller, 
Uh, a car went, same car went by every three to four minutes, and this is a common occurrence all day, every day in our neighborhood. And um, I'm, I'm wondering if also we can look into any authority that might be there to limit um, cruising essentially uh, via any existing laws around cruising over by a control point over and over throughout a day and all night. Um, I am worried having worked for one of these companies that their uh, safety record is not great. And also I know during the deep part of the pandemic, crews claimed they were using their vehicles to deliver food to people in need. But uh, upon digging into that, uh, some of the tech, tech crunch and reporters found that they were actually only putting uh, mules in a small amount of cars and kind of using it as a false cover. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Next speaker, please. That was the last speaker in the queue. Thank you. So with that, we will close public comments and move on to our next item. Item number eight, the Citizens Advisory Council report. We have no report today. Places you on item nine, general public comment. This is time for members of the public who'd make to, like to make comments under the subject matter jurisdiction of the SFMTA, but not on today's calendar and not already discussed, may do so at this time. I have speaker cards, Alito Dupree, Patricia Vahi, Flo Kelly, Wonderful. Please proceed to the podium. Um, thank you again, uh, Chair Gwyneth Borden and members. Uh, Alita Dupree, for the record, she and her. I'm glad I filled out a speaker card. Thank you. As I speak gener generally, um, I did use Muni uh, a few times in the past couple of weeks, mostly to go out to the west side. Uh, it was okay, um, but many times when I'm in this area, uh, I use BART. Cost me 45 cents less, so got to watch my pennies here. So uh, Muni is not my only option, and uh, I did use a, a rideshare, uh, an all-electric, zero-emission rideshare, which was probably charged up with clean electricity from Clean Power SF. I felt I was able to live my values that day and grateful that I had options. Um, ho ho hope, I, hope I've not upset you with this report, but I'm gonna do what I have to do to use the things that I need as a person with disabilities to travel, which is the buses and the trains. And uh, haven't used the scooters because uh, I didn't bring my bike helmet with me. And, wouldn't look good if I went out and rode with my bike helmet, without my bike helmet, and then if you saw me, then I might not be welcome at meetings anymore. So I'm not gonna embarrass myself that way. But next time I'll have my helmet and I'll probably use them. Uh, so I, I believe that Muni uh, should be as inclusive as possible. And I looked at my receipt from that TNC ride and there was a tax that was paid of which some of that money goes to Muni. So I said to myself, I helped Muni out a bit today. So I appreciate it. I may be different, but I ask that you respect that. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Patricia Boy. Last week, there was another hearing about changing our yellow meters that stop at 1 o'clock in the afternoon to take them to 6 o'clock. This is going to deny our only grocery store any parking on that side of the street because of parklets. 
We objected. It was improper noticing. In the block before, they're trying to change the yet another meter uh, to, from one to six. And the two small businesses who have suffered greatly because of illegal extended parklets that was cut back. They had two new parking places, and now you're about to take one of them away from them. We have a, I'm sorry, it just won't stop. I cut, cut it off. Uh, um, this is about the fourth or fifth time they've tried to change all of our yellow zones to six o'clock at night meters, and it just can't work. We lost 200 meters since you started the Lombard and Chestnut plan, and not, that, that counts the 75 loss of meters with the uh, parklets. Uh, but now we have another 50 that we're losing because you guys supported taking the parking lot away from Wells Fargo. Our merchants have lost all of their parking and we cannot have any more loss of yellow meters for the afternoon. We're asking you to stop this. you probably hear it next week on, on the, uh, from the engineering department, but we're asking us to do a study with us what the uses are of each building. We've got a list of them. We will help you. I worked for a year and a half on this program with you before, and it worked. And now what I'm saying is arbitrary and capricious decisions against the economic viability of my merchants and the quality of life of our neighbors. Please ask the engineers to put this on hold until we can really work out a system. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Hi, my name is Susan Ciutat. I'm a 22-year resident of San Francisco, a nurse and a small business owner. And I'm here to talk again about the towing of vehicles that people live in. Um, right now in the Bayview, there's a lot of towing of people's homes going on um, on Ingalls Street. Um, I don't know the exact number, but we've the people who are with me may have some numbers for you. We've been out there talking to people. Just one example, um, there was a gentleman who has been living in his RV since COVID started, and he lost his job, so he lost his housing, and um, they just took his vehicle. With He doesn't understand why. Um, it was hard to get the exact information from the different different people that we spoke to, but sometimes there's notices, sometimes there's not. Um, the, the notices don't necessarily give a reason. Um, this is an area where there's no residents, there are no merchants, there, there are no children, so it, it really seems like if there's any place where people should be able to stay in their vehicles, who live in their vehicles, this is it. And um, SFMTA was asked to give a report last May about towing. Um, still hasn't happened. Last time I brought it up, it was mentioned, and they said, yeah, we'll do it. There's still, I, I think you really, really need to get a deadline for when this report will happen so that we really understand who is being towed and why. 
I love this city, I pay a lot in taxes, and I really don't like my tax dollars going to destroy the lives of people who are living on the edge. Thank you. Thank you. I'll read off a few more cards. Flo Kelly, Leslie Sheehan, and Paula Katz. Yeah. Hi, I'm Flo Kelly. Uh, I volunteer with the Coalition on Homelessness, and I'm representing the Stop Poverty Toes Coalition today. We definitely do need that equity report on the towing of vehicles. Um, it was requested by the MTA board May of 2021, not May of this year. And we still have not gotten any um, equity we haven't heard about any equity report. Maybe you have received one and um, we're not aware of it. <clears throat> so, um, during the meeting of June 21st, Leslie, who you were about to hear from, who lives in her vehicle, and a friend of hers came and the idea was for them to give public comment. It happened to be a really hot, hot day and they have dogs in their respective vehicles. Um, after we waited for an hour, after we were sitting here for an hour and 20 minutes, um, and there was so much public comment coming on regarding Lake Street, um, safe streets, that um, it, was, it was time to go to save the dogs that were left in their RVs because it was way too hot. They didn't want them to be harmed. I'm pointing this out because it's really a challenge for people who live in their vehicles to be here and to give public comment, but they have a lot to say and they would really, really like to be here. So um, Leslie, who you're about to hear from again, um, collected, uh, was motivated during our last meeting of the board to, um, develop a questionnaire and go around and talk to her neighbors about um, what you. their towing experience was. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Hey. Uh, my name is Leslie Sheehan, and I've noticed that the SFMTA has started towing RVs and trailers again, and in the last <clears throat> month from like starting at Thomas, going all the way to Carroll, all the RVs and trailers have been removed. A lot of the people weren't given a reason. Some of them said that they were warned a day or two in advance. And I don't understand the motives behind this, if this is an effort on the city's behalf to get rid of the homeless population. But I think it's important that you understand that when you leave people standing on the sidewalk, watching their house and everything they own being towed away, that you're actually perpetuating the problem. You're not solving it. And I think it'd be a good idea if you address that and, I don't know, reach some type of understanding, because it's not gonna work like that. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Oh, excuse me. 
Paula Katz here. I hope you will read the public comment I emailed you yesterday if you have not already done so. As I've explained, SFMTA shortening the L bus route at West Portal on July 9th violated two sections of the city charter, which places responsibility for making significant bus line route changes with a board and not staff. SFMTA has not been able to establish an exception for any of the reasons it is offered for not presenting the change to you for a vote. The only remedy for these charter violations is to rescind the unlawful L bus route change and restore the West Portal Embarcadero section by placing the rescission issue as an action item as soon as possible on an upcoming board agenda for a public hearing or the issue of the change itself. Once you rescind the change, if SFMTA wants to again eliminate the portion between West Portal and the Embarcadero, it must place this issue on a separate board agenda with a normal outreach, analysis, and full report. Without knowing what might be going on behind the scenes, I urge you to reject any possible attempt by SFMTA to convince you to hold off rescinding the unlawful L bus route change until SFMTA can put the route change itself on a board agenda for you to approve. Clearly, SFMTA does not want the L bus route change rescinded, as it admittedly made the change so it could use the savings to fund other routes. But SFMTA should not be allowed to continue violating the charter by keeping the unlawful L bus route change in effect for any length of time, even until they might or might not convince you to approve it. Allowing the violations to continue would reward SFMTA for violating the charter and encourage future violations, and it would undermine public trust in the board and SFMT SFMTA. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker, please. I have no additional speaker cards. Are there any callers in the line, moderator? We do have five speakers on the, in the queue. Great, please proceed. Is there a caller on the Hello? line? Hello? Yes. Hi, can you hear me? Yes, yes. we can, thank you. Hi. Um, my name is Tammy Brock, and I represent my family property at the west side corner of Powell and O'Farrell. Um, last Friday, Dan Makowski contacted me to let me know you were starting work on our street, advising me that you made the decision more than two years ago to move the bus stop at our building and turn our street into a commercial parking zone without meeting with us or obtaining our input. Um, the information he sent to me yesterday states that as required, your project team consulted with key stakeholders next to us, including Macy's, Walgreens, and H&M. Um, our family property is the key stakeholder, and we were not consulted or heard. Um, Dan obtained my contact information from the Union Square Alliance um, last week, so the SF MTA had knowledge of how to directly contact me before a vote was taken. Until we are provided time to review all materials and do our own studies and have a one-on-one -on -one, one -on -one meeting and provide input at a public hearing as you provided other key stakeholders, this project cannot move forward. Your office has my contact information so we can discuss this further. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker, please. 
Hello, board directors. Uh, this is Dave Alexander. I'm a parent of two small children in District 1. We get around via transit walking and by biking. Just calling to uh, urge this board to hold the line regarding the slow streets program or the open streets or whatever it's going to be. However, it's evolving uh, in its current form. It's so important. There's not a gap in time with school starting on August 15th. We need to keep some sort of, some iteration of the slow streets program intact. I also support the active communities plan and really support um, a program that fits the needs and the desires. So a program that's valuable to each neighborhood. One, a one size fits all is not going to work. We know that. Um, but yeah, we just definitely want to urge this board to hold the line as best as you can. Thank you so much. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Hello, good afternoon, Chair Borden and fellow directors, uh, the other three of you today. Um, I would like to point out a few things. First, um, you need to talk about AB 2438, uh, some member uh, Friedman's bill regarding transportation funding. I think uh, you should get a report from that from your staff, and I'm surprised that you haven't heard anything about it today uh, or in the past. The other one is um, I'm surprised you did not hear about the red zone ticket of the couple that was out of town, and all of a sudden they find their curb space painted, except for where the tire leaned against the curb. And it became a little embarrassing uh, for the staff and why this wasn't handled better and why the ticket was given in the first place. You can't even, I can't even get anyone to come and ticket taxi zones in the evening. I think it's important to, um, to provide more staffing for the, uh, for the evening taxi, uh, not taxi, excuse me, the evening complaints. You don't have enough staff in the nighttime and weekend hours to handle that. And I think adding one or two more people to that, to that duty would really go a long way, which gives a shout out to Peter Woods, one of your tax investigators, goes out there and diligently uh, cites drivers who cannot read signs or, or curb markings that are clearly state it's for taxis only and, uh, and, or buses. So I appreciate him the honor. And also Philip Prena for making it happen that that the, the, the trim tree now you can go by the Hilton and see that there's a marked taxi stand at the Hilton that should be enforced better. Uh, we haven't heard anything regarding the upfront fair pricing rules and the project program is supposed to start soon. And we also um, have not um, heard anything about uh, about what's going on with Thank with you, Mr. Uh, Toronto. Uh, the, Next speaker, please. Good afternoon, Chair and Directors. My name is Eliana Binger, and I'm the Policy Associate for GLIDE. GLIDE is a proud member of the End Poverty Toast Coalition, representing over 80 local community-based organizations. You've already heard from my fellow coalition members, Flo and Susan, who have joined you in person. While SFMTE has implemented some of our coalition's recommendations, the underlying issue has not been fully addressed. However, on behalf of the coalition, we are grateful for the renewed call for a report back on the poverty toes, and we're looking forward to learning the results. Director, Director Kahina and Director Tumlin discussed this at the SFMTA Board of Directors meeting on April 19, 2022, and as Phil mentioned, it was originally discussed over a year ago on May 4, 2021. 
Initially, the report was expected to take three months. But I'm calling to ask if there's a timeline for when this report will be completed. This additional data and context from the report will undoubtedly contribute to more informed tolling policy reforms. Please provide an update on timeline for the report and prioritize completion. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Hi, my name is Martin Munoz. I live in D5. Um, I'm a renter here and uh, I exclusively take transit, um, walk, or when I'm lucky enough to uh, be able to use infrastructure, I, I bike. I'm actually sitting, uh, sitting here looking at Page Street and watching people um, run along and bike along and really enjoy this corridor. In September, um, you'll probably be asked um, to reconsider the Slow Streets program. I'm asking as a resident of a Slow Street um, to please uh, hold the line and, and continue um, this program in its full uh, extent. That means diverters, that means um, that means signage, that means actual infrastructure. Um, as a reminder, and I don't have to remind the board this, but as a reminder for the record, um, slow streets don't actually ban cars. They just ban cars driving recklessly, which we've seen has caused um, more than a dozen deaths this year in San Francisco. We're asking for a few streets to be safe for people to bike and walk along um, and potentially you know, have kids playing in the streets and, and enjoying the public space, uh, the little public space that we have in urban San Francisco. Um, outside of our parks. So, um, yeah, I, I just like to, to, to um, implore the board um, to reject the mayor's um, dismantling of slow streets. Um, these are not streets that ban cars. These are streets that make it safer for people who are not in cars to get around the city. Um, and I, I know the board knows this, and I know the board is probably going to be under a lot of pressure come September, but just know that slow street activists across the city have your back. 30 and, seconds. And um, the same way that you guys, is that my time? 30 seconds. Oh, okay. Um, and uh, just like we had your back during the JFK vote, we'll have your back with Slow Street. So, you know, do the right thing um, and don't roll back these um, transformative changes that have been a rare uh, ray of sunshine in a very dark pandemic. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Is there another speaker on the line? Yes, sorry, it takes a moment until it unmutes. Um, it, the, I'm Stacey Randecker, a 20-year D10 resident, and, and have heard rumblings that the unbelievably popular Slow Streets program is going to be repealed. And I find that completely outrageous. Um, we need a network of streets that have, some have no cars, others have slow cars, and the ones that must have cars on them, there should be protected bike lanes. We need people to be able to navigate this city safely outside of cars. That's walking, that's getting to transit, that's riding a bike. We are burning the planet. I don't understand how we can declare a climate emergency and then do nothing about it. Transportation is the number one cause of greenhouse gases which are causing climate change in San Francisco, in California, in the United States. How is the number one problem not being addressed? San Francisco declared vision zero in, two, uh, that they wanted to reach vision zero in 2014. There are 516 days left and the chart is going up and to the right. 
we are on track for a record number of deaths this year since we embarked upon Vision Zero. How is that compatible with taking, with giving more space to cars? I do not understand. It's been 49 years and four months since we declared ourselves a transit first city. 30 seconds. Yet transit takes a backseat to cars every damn day. We should be rolling out the red carpet for all modes that are not personal motor vehicles. To not do that is flying in the face of all the things that the Board of Supervisors has put out before it. I may be speaking to the choir, preaching to the choir, but please hold on to this tightly. Do not cave into this. Thank you, Ms. Randecker. Next speaker, please. Thanks, Chair Warden. Uh, this is Luke Bornheimer. Uh, first, I just want to thank all of you for your support of the Slow Streets program and network thus far. You've all been vocal and engaged on wanting to see Slow Streets not only be made permanent, but to be expanded um, along with other callers today. I just want to bring attention to the fact that, um, you know, you'll likely be hearing an update in September uh, about the Slow Streets program. And as all of you know and have been vocal about um, slow streets help to address our climate crisis. It helps to address our street safety crisis. Um, it also increases public health and has made communities stronger and more resilient. Um, what we need to be doing right now is not be asking which of these streets we should keep as slow streets, but which other streets we should also be including. And in fact, we should be asking what are the few streets in our city that shouldn't be slow streets. Um, so. I just want to encourage all of you to be engaged on this, to talk to Slow Street supporters, those who have been doing um, innumerable hours of outreach and advocacy around these things, and all that they're asking for is permanent and physical infrastructure that actually um, self-enforces and prohibits cut-through traffic, which is predominantly the speeding and reckless driving on these streets um, and the detriment to all of our uh, sustainability goals and street safety um, issues. So, yeah, just really want to encourage you to support that and engage with supporters who who are really active on this topic, um, and uh, yeah, and push back on pressure that is uh, that is trying to dismantle this program while we continue to have a climate crisis and a pedestrian safety crisis. So, thanks again for your support um, and your continued engagement. Thank you. Next speaker, please. That appears to be the last caller. So with that, we will close public comment and move on to our next item. Did you have a point of uh, Just a quick follow-up, Madam Chair, on towing. I recall reading, Jeff, a report on towing in the last couple of weeks. I believe it was addressed to the Board of Supervisors. Is that the report that we're hearing from folks that they're looking for, or is that some other report? Uh, I'm not sure, but when uh, Streets Director Tom McGuire is back from holiday, um, we'd certainly be happy to discuss if you'd like to agendize something uh, whenever. We're happy to update you. We've continued to refine uh, our policies uh, and particularly share communities' goals to minimize harm to folks who are living uh, in their vehicles on San Francisco streets. Okay, thank you. Thank you. So that will close that item, public comment, and we'll move on to our calendar, our regular calendar. Director, is that places you on item number 10? 
consent calendar. These items are considered to be routine and will be acted upon by a single vote unless a member of the board or public wishes to consider an item separately. Members of the public listening on phone, if you wish to address the board on a consent item, press star three so that you can be added to the queue. And for all speakers, please identify which item number you are speaking to. Item 10.1, requesting the controller to allot funds and to draw warrants against such funds available or will be available in payment of the following claims against the SFMTA. Item A, Michael Gaudet versus CSF, Superior Court CGC 17560481, filed July 31st, 2017, uh, for the city to receive $20,000. Item 10.2, approving various routine and parking traffic modifications as listed in the agenda, items A through G. That concludes the consent calendar. Thank you. Directors, are there any items that you'd like to sever? Seeing none, um, I'm going to open up to public comment. Any men members of the public would like to comment on our consent calendar? I have no speaker cards. I'm not seeing anyone join the queue online. So we will close public comment. Is there a motion? So move. I'll move the items. Second. <laughs> so with that, um, please call the roll. On the motion to approve the consent calendar, Director Kahina. Aye. Kahina, aye. Director Heminger. Aye. Heminger, aye. Director Hinzi. Aye. Hinzi, aye. Chair Borden. Aye. Borden, aye. Thank you. The consent calendar is approved. Brings us on to item 11. Item number 11, presentation and discussion regarding an SFMTA fiscal and management update. Very important update, Mr. Rewers. Good afternoon, Chair Borden, um, board members, Jonathan Rewers, Acting Chief Financial Officer. Um, we're starting a new fiscal year, so I'm gonna give you your first update, and this slide deck is under 20 slides, so it's, I'm, I'm trying to be shorter. Um, just to update the board, um, as of August 1st, that was the charter deadline for the San Francisco Board of Supervisors to take action on the MTA budget. They did not, so the budget is now deemed approved, and we are now in fiscal year 23. Um, just to remind you, so we did have a number of augmentations planned in the budget. Um, those augmentations are controlled by certain performance measures that we set financially for the agency, i.e. the use of one-time funds. So we're trying to keep that at 16.6%. So we're slowly but surely trying to continue to have that go down. Um, we want to fully fund on the capital side our state of good repair needs and our five-year CIP does that. You will be getting an update on our annual state of good repair um, of the overall system probably in late September. We're finalizing the data now where we look at the term score. So we wanna at least hopefully um, hope that that remains consistent. Um, we do, I'm gonna talk a little bit about fair revenue recovery and where we are with parking revenues. But again, we've set um, certain performance targets. We'll really look at those after the first quarter. We're just starting in the fiscal year, so in September we'll go into more detail. But these were the targets that we set. You'll see now where the fiscal year 22 actuals were. So we did the same exercise in the same periods for fiscal year 22. We didn't quite hit our targets, but um, I will be updating you on where we are at this point. <coughs> So the good news is on parking revenues, we are actually at pre-pandemic levels of revenue. So this is good news. Um, shockingly, um, garage revenues were pretty good and almost at pre-pandemic levels. I do think a lot of that had to do with the number of special events that were going on in the city, but it's still a good trend. And based on the prior three months, we've hit that target of what we expected parking revenues to be if we continue that trend through the remainder of the fiscal year. So you'll see in this chart, it's very clear in those last four months, 
we are back to what we traditionally would have seen. Here's the longer period. You'll see pre-pandemic, you'll see the growth of parking revenue. So again, in the final quarter of fiscal year 22, we're generally in the zone. Um, we've also seen an increase in fees and fines. Um, I also attest that to the fact that a number of visitors are coming into San Francisco. They don't necessarily know all the parking rules. They might overrun the meter a little bit. So we see citations also go up. That is the, the dark blue line that you see here. Um, on fares, that last month looks unusually high. It looks like there was a huge jump in May and June. There's a reason for that. We're in month 13 of the fiscal year, so we kind of melge together um, the June and July data as it comes in real time. Um, transit fares are up. However, the huge chunk you see is that we get our institutional pass payment in this month at the end of the fiscal year. So that's for both the Chase Center, so for the tickets when you get free transit, and also um, for um, San Francisco State. So those are included in this month, so it does bump up um, the transit fare revenues. Those do, though, um, you'll see our ridership projection. We're going to be doing an update. Uh, Julie and I will be giving you some updates on the transit ridership projection. I, I would say she can speak further to it, probably in September-ish. We're working on the numbers now. The numbers are within the trend of the projection we gave you for the budget, but we do, we've been reviewing the data and we do need to make some corrections, so we'll probably adjust that. But we're still, the growth percentage month over month is still pretty much uh, within what we had projected it to be. That said, we continue to see a separation between the growth in ridership and the growth in our fare revenues. And that indicates, as we discussed during the budget, that we probably have fare evasion going on, probably at levels higher than we would normally expect pre-pandemic. Um, we are working on that. We are consistently reminding our riding community to pay their fare and to follow the rules. And we'll um, give you further updates on our actions um, in the fall. So the, where we see the ridership growth and where we see the fares aren't consistent, and generally we've seen over the past year things are pretty flat. So we do want to try to work um, and see that move in the next couple of months. So bottom line, parking revenue is good, hitting our performance targets. Transit fares not. And again, if you remember when I updated you on um, the on our financial ratings, fares were consistently our area of weakness, where you know the the financial markets feel that our fares will not recover to a level in time um, by the time that our federal relief runs out. Um, on the CIP, um, to give you an update, uh, you'll remember that we approved a uh, five-year CIP of two point six billion dollars, and we did for the first time CIP plus. So based on everything we saw with the infrastructure bill and all the work we're doing with the Board of Supervisors and the mayor to raise uh, revenues for our capital, what additional revenues did we think we could get in the five-year period? That was estimated at about $737 million. Um, currently, since you adopted the budget, we have gotten awards of competitive grants of $120 million. We've applied for another 10.6. What you don't see on there, because we just used the April budget, is we have another $200 million in applications out right now that we're hoping to hear about between probably now and the end of the calendar year. So we're continuing to aggressively pursue outside capital resources, and we'll continue to try to meet the targets that we set in the budget process. Um, unfortunately, as is generally and probably well known, um, Proposition A, which was the Muni Reliability and Street Safety Bond, um, did not pass. 
Um, it did not get the two-thirds voter requirement. However, we were successful at getting more than 65% of San Francisco voters to support the general obligation bond. Um, because we will not have those geo bond funds in the period we anticipated for the five-year CIP, it does create project and programmatic risks. And this was the update that you asked for. Just to remind people who are watching, um, generally, two-thirds of the bond was going towards state of good repair elements to the system, so muni facilities that were going to help us prepare for electrification of the fleet, um, continuing to make improvements to our streets to speed up and make transit more reliable, $10 million for our train control system replacement, and then three different categories on the streets. One, helping us get those quick build improvements done um, by the 2024 deadline. Um, also some traffic calming improvements, really trying to catch up on our traffic signal state of good repair. We are doing a specific condition assessment on all of our traffic signal infrastructure right now. I don't think it'll be complete by the time that we update you on our overall state of good repair, but we will give you an update on where we stand with that infrastructure. And then major street corridors where we have federal and other grants and we need to close project gaps. So here are the risks when we looked at it. We, we did take a good month. We looked at our project portfolio. We especially looked at cash flow requirements, which is where we have the biggest risk. So had the bond passed, we would have moved for an immediate issuance. Remember for those following, the MTA intended on spending two thirds of the bond early and upfront. We had a number of shovel ready projects that required cash flow to advance. So first, um, as we've made clear a huge component of the bond was San Francisco's commitment to a lot of these competitive and other sources that we're seeing through the federal and state government. Very often these competitive grants require local match. Now there's a minimum local match. Very often it's 20%. However, the higher the match, the greater the local commitment, the greater likelihood that the MTA in San Francisco would successfully get that grant. It doesn't mean we're not going to apply. It doesn't mean we're not going to try. It's just, you know, sometimes it can be one or two points as to whether or not you win. It will be harder for us to win some of these grants because we don't have as much match and as much leverage available to the agency. Second is our Muni Fleet electrification and the um, state of good repair of our facilities. So uh, we'll be providing you an update on where we are with electrification and our policy also in the fall in the coming weeks. Um, the key component though, in order for us to achieve that electrification of the fleet is to have the charging infrastructure in place at our facilities. It also so happens that those facilities are, at least two of them are over hundred years old. So major state of good repair, major future proofing the infrastructure. Again, we're gonna have cash flow constraints on some of those projects. Like there are large over hundred million dollar projects um, the agency will manage that, and we do think we can manage that over the next year. We'll look to see what happens with the sales tax in the coming months. But because we don't have immediate cash flow, we have to look to other ways to fund these projects, which will likely involve financing. That financing makes the cost of these projects more expensive. So that's the agency has to play, put this infrastructure in place. We have to replace this infrastructure. Um, it will probably take a little bit longer, and it will be more expensive because we don't have the immediate cash flow to keep these projects moving. On the street safety side, as I said, there was a component um, of that $30 million that was set aside for quick build. Um, we were hoping to get a one-time major infusion of dollars. As you know, getting huge chunks of dollars at one time for our street improvements tends to be difficult outside of a competitive grant. 
Um, we will continue to work to try to fund those improvements, but the scale that we were hoping to get to um, immediately and quickly will definitely be more difficult. Um, again, you will see in our state of good repair report, and we've consistently um, made clear that traffic signals are one of those areas where we have a significant state of good repair backlog. And traffic signals impact everybody. It impacts the transit system, it impacts drivers, it impacts our ability to add uh, pedestrian countdown signals and audible pedestrian signals for those who need it, making those safety improvements when we can't invest in that infrastructure. And so again, that backlog will continue and will grow because we won't have that one-time infusion. Just overall on our major corridor projects, again, we will continue to try to fund these projects meeting their immediate cash flow needs. But again, if we have to wait for a competitive grant to show up, if we have to wait for another source to show up for that construction component of that particular project, again, that's a delay. Delay equals cost escalation, and it will just be more expensive. So looking at our overall CIP, um, these are the impacts that we see um, with Prop A not passing. It doesn't mean we're not gonna give it another shot with the voters, but there are consequences for us not having these dollars available immediately. So to just kind of review, our original CIP plus estimate on top of the revenues that we did expect to get in the five-year window was in the 300 million to $1 billion range. Our estimate in April was 737 million. That range is now shrunk. Um, because we won't have the geo bonds in the window that we thought with the issuance timing of $457 million. Again, we will be aggressive pursuing all other sources to try to fund the projects and meet the um, goals that we've set, but that's where we stand right now. Um, upcoming in the next couple weeks and months, um, we'll come again with our annual state of good repair report to show you what the condition of our infrastructure is. Um, I believe the board asked for an update on, so what are gonna be the revenue measures? What are gonna be our other tactics? We'll come forward with an update of Transportation 2050 to kinda, you know, now that we know where we stand, what are our next steps and options? And then uh, we'll do the first quarter financial review after we have the first quarter. The board asked that we kinda hold the augmentations until we knew where we were revenue-wise and those performance measures. We'll give you an update and then we'll move forward with um, some of those program augmentations, um, hopefully in September, October. And happy to take any questions, and if there are other items you'd like us to bring back, we can certainly do so. I know that Director Hinsey has a question. I do, and thank you, Jonathan, as always, for your updates. I have a couple of questions. One is, I, I was wondering, uh, since the sales tax is now officially on the ballot, uh, as of a couple of weeks ago, I was wondering if you could sort of lay this update in the context of the sales tax, the sales tax, and that sort of fight that we're going to have up, upcoming here. It's sort of how that lays in with um, everything that you just presented. Mm -hmm. So. Uh... Yes, uh, a reauthorization of the current transportation sales tax is planned for the November 2022 ballot. Um, I think a couple just factual things that people should understand is that more than two-thirds of that sales tax comes to the MTA. Um, of that two-thirds, uh, a component of that sales tax will add dollars to our ability to advance muni forward projects. We have spent all those dollars in the current expenditure plan. That category is now at zero which is why we added some dollars in our geo bond for that there, because there are no sales tax dollars left. So hopefully with reauthorization, we'll have some dollars to be able to continue to add reliability improvements to the streets. Um, the fleet category, the vehicles category of the current sales tax expenditure program is at zero. 
So currently we have little, if any, local match for our federal, um, our federal funds as we move into a fleet replacement cycle, which Julie will be talking about when we talk about electrification. That is a key weakness. Um, we count on the sales tax to be San Francisco's local match for our federal grants for our fleet replacement. A component in the operating budget funded by the sales tax is our paratransit program. So when we come forward with the budget every year, the only component of operating funds that come um, from the sales tax is for paratransit. And that's well over 10% of the expenditure plan is paratransit um, in the upcoming sales tax. We've got about two more years of funding in the current expenditure plan, and then that category will also be exhausted. So um, there are significant risks for the MTA. Um, associated with the program. There are very critical categories and funding sources that we count on from the sales tax. So um, that, those are factual statements and we will leave it to the voters in November. All right. And then just to clarify, so you, you mentioned in your presentation that we, um, we have a few off-ramps that we built into our budget and the, the first one it sounds like we'll be later in the fall, correct? Correct. So we're, since the Board of Supervisors essentially approved the city components of the budget, the annual appropriation ordinance and the annual salary ordinance, we now will go through a reconciliation process and get all the new positions that the board approved into the budget and into the hiring system. Mm -hmm. um, Usually that, that takes us about a quarter, so it'll take us most of August to get that done anyway, which gets you into September. Um, the first chunk of programmatic staffing augmentations were about $26 million of ongoing expenditures that would start in the first quarter. So I'll come back with an update. Again, I'm pretty, I feel good, but we need to see that trend um, with the parking revenues. So, so far we're hitting the targets that we were hoping. Transit fares, we are not. So um, we'll see where we stand. Um, we'll remind the board what some of those programmatic augmentations are. Um, and then, you know, hopefully you'll be comfortable enough and we'll move forward with hiring, especially in some of those critical areas where we, we need staffing um, to get the system running at full speed. But no, noting that we did, um, we did take a hit, particularly in the streets and the traffic signal area, we could, as a board, if we were if we we were so inclined, move some of the um, uh, budget augmentations from operating into streets and capital. Correct. Assuming you do an analysis, et cetera. Yes, we we did that about a year and a half ago. Um, the board might remember we were in that. You know, December, we might have to lay off 1,100 people. We were waiting to see once the Biden administration came in if we were going to get additional federal relief. We did in that year. And so we, we defunded a huge component of the streets capital program in that year just to have, you know, the one-time dollars available to just kind of keep ourselves going. The board asked us to restore that, which we did in fiscal year 21. Um, we can certainly give you estimates of, of savings or if we deferred, which will create one-time dollars that if you did want to shift to capital um, would be a policy decision. Right. And I think I would, just speaking for myself, and we'll obviously have this conversation when we get to that, but I would put that on the table for my colleagues' consideration in light of 
what what happened with the defeat of Prop A and the effect that that's going to have on our streets, particularly our traffic signals. I know we have, for example, a grant out there preparing uh, replacement of some traffic signals in Tenderloin, and I know that we were anticipating the bonds for it to be sort of our first chunk of money for that, but that is no longer guaranteed, and I know that that's not the only, the only project that 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 would be the case uh, given the outcome with Prop A. So I just put that out there for my colleagues' consideration over the coming months. And I was just curious, also, and this might be a question for Mr. Goldberg, if you're uh, present, um, what sort of projects are, what kind of grants do we have out there for application at the moment, just to sort of give the board an idea? Thank you for the question, Director Hinsey. I'm Joel Goldberg, Manager of Programming and Grants for SFMTA. We have so many opportunities coming um, through the new budget, in the bipartisan infrastructure law. Um, we're doing a lot of inreach within SFMTA um, coordination with the city family, coordination with the region and even the state on some of these opportunities. Um, for the street side, we're, we have an exciting Safer Streets for All program with applications due on the 15th of September. Um, the Highway Safety Improvement Program, also related to street and traffic signal upgrades, has applications due. And that's a program we always get a couple of million dollars a year for, so we're successful. Um, and then a calendar that's going to keep us really busy through the end of the calendar year. Um, what's really good about this new grant cycle is that in the past when a new administration would come into town, a lot of these funds would be one time. But what we're seeing with the new administration and the BIL is that these are the first of annual cycles of these grant opportunities. So what we've also learned over the years is sometimes if we don't get funds for a project the first time through, we can try, try again. And so with the new BIL legislation, if we don't succeed, all of our grants and projects gestate for another year. They develop a little bit, and our odds increase. Um, but as Jonathan alluded to, we're going to have to be pretty creative about the local matching contributions so we can maximize the amount of grants that we receive. All right. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, colleagues. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. Deck Director Heminger. Thank you, uh, Madam Chair. Jonathan, could you put up slide six again? Um, so what I did uh, is to add up the bars, because mm -hmm. uh, it's 12 months of bars, and it's about 60 million bucks. Mm -hmm. And as I recall, pre-pandemic, we were like around 200 million in fair yep. revenue. So this is less than a third Yep. in revenue, uh, but in terms of ridership, we're back at 60%, somewhere around there. And I think you attributed it to fare evasion, um, which I don't doubt. Uh, but I wonder also whether it's that the categories of people who have come back are the ones likely to get the discounts, and the, are the bread and butter fast pass holder is also the person who's maybe working from home a lot. Yep. Um, so is that a factor of it too? I see Jeff is up on his home. Can I try there, that? So. Can I try that one first? So, you're right, and and our our fair revenue models account for that. So, 
when we developed the fair revenue model, we assumed that th the most transit reliant riders who would s receive significant discounts would be the ones and that our, our fair revenue levels would be low. But it, it sort of exponentially grows as the ridership does because at some point you're past those riders to people who can afford to pay the fare. Right. So you should see the arc turn up. We're not seeing the arc turn up. So with each class of riders that come back, in theory, they should be able to pay you know full monthly fare, full cash fare at a certain level. Like we should see that turn and we're not seeing the turn. Um, we're seeing it kind of stay kind of equal to the growth of the ridership or actually trend lower than the growth of the ridership. So that tells us that something is going on. So what we do is we assume a certain amount that we would collect per rider. And as the ridership gets bigger, the amount that we'll collect on average per rider increases. That's where that curve goes up. So we're not, we're not seeing the curve um, as the ridership continues to increase. Like we should see that separation decline and we're not. It's staying the same. So well, that and, does and that, tell us that's that part of the larger happening. discussion about is there a way to talk people into going to work again? Um, on on fair evasion, though, I, I know we were walking on eggshells during the pandemic because we didn't want to look like we were clobbering people who were transit dependent. Are we over that now? Are, are we back to enforcing the fares at pre-pandemic levels? Uh, because that is something we could do something about in terms of the revenue that the system is owed. Yes, we're steadily ratcheting up our enforcement of our FARE program, although we've made significant changes in our overall approach right. to FARE compliance and that it is very much focused on compliance and making sure that everyone has all of the FARE instruments that they need, including access to our many discount programs. So uh, we, we know we have a FARE evasion problem that we are working to address. Um, at the same time, we have introduced a whole variety of other um, ways of paying for Muni aside from tagging your Clipper card. Um, and so one thing I just want to point out to everyone is that most of our riders no longer need to actually tag their Clipper card because they're using Muni Mobile on their phone um, or, for example, they're anyone 18 or under who no longer needs to tag at all. They can just get on the bus and ride for free. So I want to emphasize that just because people are not going ding at the, uh, at, you know, the, the card reader at the, at the gate, that doesn't mean that they're not paying their fare. That said, we are uh, very concerned that uh, everyone pays their fair share and that everyone has access to the appropriate discount programs who warrants them. And maybe just returning to the other part of this coin, the other side of the coin, which is the, the, the work trips that aren't being made. Mm -hmm. um, and Jeff, I know you meet with your counterparts from the other transit agencies. And I mean, that's a group of really sharp people. Um, and I'm wondering whether you've come up with any ideas about trying to reverse that, that drop um, in ridership I've, I've seen information, I think MTC publishes it every month, that compares all the systems in the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. And Muni is up toward the top of the chart. The That's other right. agency that I sit on the board of, thanks to this board, uh, <laughs> is Caltrain, which is at the bottom mm -hmm. um, of the chart. So have you folks come up with anything? Uh, yes. Can we, can we hope for some, some optimism? Well, so what... Every, every month, we actually produce uh, detailed ridership reports by line using the automated passenger counters at the door of every one of our buses. So we're able to track 
uh, you know, pretty close to real line, in real time, by line, what the ridership trends are. And one of the things that is clear when you divvy up all the lines across the city is that to the extent that lines are not going downtown and that they're fast and frequent and reliable, our ridership is at or exceeding pre-COVID levels. So the 22 Fillmore and the 14 Mission are both exceeding pre-COVID ridership and are at 150% of pre-COVID weekend ridership. That is extraordinary and something that we're not boasting enough about that the investments that the SFMTA made during COVID to improve speed, reliability, and frequency on our main lines has paid off and is delivering in terms of ridership. Where we're facing challenges are on lines and specifically trips that are heading to empty office buildings in the financial district. That is by far our greatest weakness and there's nothing that we can do as a transit agency alone to make people ride buses to empty office buildings, aside from getting people into those office buildings. So something that we are fairly confident in and are in agreement with the controller's office on is that there is no scenario in which those downtown San Francisco office buildings sit empty in the long run. They will all be filled. That is incredibly valuable real estate, but they get refilled at the pace of commercial lease renewal. So we're already seeing companies abandoning their space in San Francisco or shrinking their space, but we're seeing a phenomenal amount of activity of companies who were pushed out of downtown San Francisco in the last economic upcycle coming back into the city because it is here in San Francisco that the magic of in-person office work happens. And that is not just a bunch of desks and laptops, that is the restaurants that offer lunch meetings. It's the bars that offer after work happy hours. It's the quality of the experience and the relationships that get built in an urban office core. That's what drives business because business is fundamentally based on trust and trust is a biological phenomenon that only develops in physical space. So for us- You're, you're sounding like a real estate developer, Jeff. I mean, I've, this is a hell of a speech. I've been in this business for a long time. So our, our challenge is really not if, but rather when. Mm -hmm. um, so our budget is based entirely on being able to watch the, you know, the, the you know, repopulation re, uh, of uh, office buildings downtown and stay slightly ahead of that so that we can lead San Francisco's economic recovery and still be able to have the revenue in order to sustain that service. This is a big reason why um, we are making sure that our federal money lasts so that it doesn't all run out and we're forced to cut service exactly when it is needed as those downtown office buildings uh, get well, repopulated. Well, and, and I'm sorry, Madam Chair, I didn't mean to soak up this much time. Oh, um, nice. I want to soak it up on the next item, actually. <laughs> uh, but Jeff, I also agree with you that we need to get that message out about the infrastructure improvements and operational improvements we made and how that makes a difference. As you know, the, the whole political debate is about how cheap can we make Muni. Um, and what we really need to do is build riders who are going to pay fair revenue um, so that we continue to have that as one of the three legs of our stool to run this system. Uh, so I think to the extent we can get that message out and do more of that uh, to the extent budget permits, uh, I, I think that's a really good path to take. 
that's what we're working on. Thank you, Madam Chair. Directors, are there any other questions for Mr. Roars? Seeing none, we'll move to public comment. This is time for members of the public to comment on our financial position. I have one speaker card, Paula Katz. Hello, Paula Katz again. Um, I know you're looking at the fiscal, but the budget from a macro level, but I'm going to discuss a micro level. And I'm going to ask the SFMTA, Mr. Tumlin, if they can't find some money in the new budget to cover the routes that you added on July 9th, where you used the money from the Elk bus where you eliminated the route from West Portal to Embarcadero. Mr. Rowers announced last week that as SFMTA has severe resource issues, they redu reduced service on the L bus and truncated the L bus at West Portal to make changes on other routes. And there are two or three routes that you've told, that SFMTA has told us about. But as I've pointed out, it's the board's responsibility under the charter to approve all route changes. And I assume you also approve how the money is spent. Um, when you were told on May 17th that SFMTA was going to do this, was going to end the L bus at West Portal, you were told it was because they wanted to alleviate overcrowding on the L bus. And that by eliminating the West Portal to Embarcadero route, they, could use the, they would use the money and they would increase the frequency on the L bus and alleviate overcrowding and buses would come every eight minutes instead of every 10 minutes. What they didn't tell you and what we didn't find out until a few weeks later is that they were going to use a substantial amount of that money to fund other routes that they were also doing that they didn't have the money for. And instead of coming to you to get the money, they decided that they, would they ended up violating the charter by eliminating substantially changing the L bus round and using the money for other segments. Um, if you can, if SFMTA could find the money to fund those other routes and restore the West Portal to Embarcadero segment, we could resolve the charter violations. But if not, we'll see. But that's my request. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Um, thank you again. Uh, Chair Gwyneth, board and members, Alita Dupree for the record, she and her. Uh, I'm always appreciative of the good, succinct, well-detailed reports of uh, John Rewers here. Uh, they make very interesting reading. And I, I speak of the basics. Uh, I am very uh, appreciative of discounts. Uh, I am a reduced fare rider myself. I ask that you value those of us who have discounts. It looks like you are because having a reduced fare clipper card is not fare evasion, as I've said before. Um, I do feel as I look at how money is brought in, I don't ever hear about the efficiencies of our different channels of paying for Muni. So I have a clipper card and I load money on it uh, and remotely and I tap it and the money comes from my balance through MTC to you. How can we get more people to use these channels such as the Clipper card and the Muni Mobile uh, and hopefully uh, open payments? 
because the cash collections is a very expensive way to make to be able to take in money and how much are we losing in that when we have many opportunities for people to get clipper cards and uh, yes there there's a thing called free smartphones and being unbanked does not mean cash only uh, there are many different ways that people can participate uh, in the uh, payment system, whether they have a traditional bank account or not. So we have to ask how much, quote, shrinkage is there for various reasons. I think we have to move forward. Technology is a unifier, not a separator. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Are there any more in-person speakers? Seeing none, are there any callers on the line? There are no speakers online. So with that, we will close public comment. Are there any additional items for, for our directors? Then we'll move on to our next item. Item number 12, presentation and discussion regarding the train control upgrade project. Good afternoon, Julie Kirschbaum, Transit Director. And it's a pleasure to have next to me Dan Howard, also new dad. This is his second day back. Congratulations. Um, leading the train control work um, and working to create a project that truly learns the lessons of our past projects and ultimately delivers a reliable product that minimizes customer disruptions. Uh, I know. I start every train control presentation with this, but I, I truly feel that this is our most impactful uh, transit improvement project. It is a key element of the subway renewal program and the Muni Metro modernization. So it will be complemented by surface investments in Muni Forward, um, as well as complementary infrastructure replacements related to our traction power system and our trackway. Um, the train control replacement project is very, very complex, uh, and it has very few U.S. peers. Only BART and New York currently have similar automatic train control systems. Uh, we are fortunate that BART is a couple years ahead of us in terms of doing a replacement, but they are really the only agency in the U.S. attempting to do this kind of next generation upgrade. Um, and no U.S. system has the surface and subway characteristics that our system has. So both the New York subway as well as the BART system are completely grade separated and don't have the traffic interaction pieces. Um, the good news is that there are many international peers that we can uh, learn from and that the products are that we're trying to procure is really tried and true technology. And so one of the things Dan is going to talk about is that this is a design um, build contract or a, a form of a design build contract in that we are putting out performance expectations and really letting the industry be the expert in terms of the product. Uh, that is critical for them to be willing to keep us up to date and current. Um, it was a big challenge with the TALIS system where we were very prescriptive on what we were looking for. Um, the bad news is that the uniqueness of the project is making the contractual process much more complicated than we anticipated. And there really isn't a existing city contract framework that we can immediately point to, so we are having to forge our own path. 
Um, this has created some challenges to our timeline, which I know the board is frustrated about and happy to take that feedback at the end. Um, we did pause the project during COVID to address emergency needs. We just absolutely could not be working on a project of this scale while dealing with the day-to-day -day needs we needed to under COVID. Uh, Dan himself was one of our kind of key support people in the Department Operations Center. Uh, we restarted in earnest about a year ago, um, and we had really expected to have this RFP issued this summer. Um, we are now tracking closer to late fall. Uh, Dan will explain some of the unique aspects of the contract and some of the delays we've encountered, uh, but I do believe that spending the time up front before the RFP is issued is the best path to minimize future risk. Um, and then lastly, before I turn things over to Dan, I do want to apologize that the presentation did not take a deep dive into the financial picture for this project. Um, I know that is something that the board will have questions about. The project is fully funded for the five-year CIP, uh, but it is a 10-year project, and we are going to have to continue to pursue discretionary funding um, in order to close some of those out-year gaps. Uh, this isn't unique. Uh, many of our large state of good infrastructure projects are following a similar pay-as-you-go effort, and we do think that the project um, has proved to be very competitive um, for outside funding sources. Um, but I did want to just uh, state that up front, and then Jonathan is here to answer the much harder questions I'm sure that will follow. Uh, related to the funding process. So with that, I'm gonna turn the presentation over to Dan and then between us, uh, we will field questions. Thank you, Julie. Um, I'm Dan Howard, I'm the project manager for the train control upgrade project. Um, and moving into uh, the presentation, I wanted to give, uh, since we have several new board members and it's been a little while, I wanted to give a little bit of an overview of the, of the project benefits and uh, what we expect to uh, accomplish with it. Um, first, taking a look at train control today, um, obviously our system is over 30 years old or approaching 30 years old um, and will be over by the time that we replace it. Um, it, it has worked really safely. Um, that's been one of the major um, upsides of, of the TALIS system that we have. Um, but it is showing signs of age um, and it's also showing um, some flaws in the design that, that we um, could improve upon with, with later um, and more, more modern technology. Um, it's also completely separate from the surface. So as everyone knows, you know, trains going between the, the surface and the subway, as they enter the portal, there's a transition handoff that happens, uh, and that's often a source of delay. Um, the surface, once they're out there, it's each of those signals is independently controlled. There's no um, central reporting back. Um, and so there's limited opportunities for the folks in central control to influence uh, the progress of the trains as they, as they move uh, towards and away from the, the subway on the various lines. Um, there's three main uh, conditions that we, that we plan to address with the project. Uh, the first being um, the customer experience. Um, the customer experience pre-pandemic uh, and the subway was not great, as, as we all remember. And that, a lot of that came from uh, the lack of reliability that the subway had to offer, and, and there are various um, sources of that, but the, one of the chief among them being the train control system itself. 
We have trains that were non-communicating or experiencing ATCS computer failures. Um, and when that happens, the, the issue is, is that the schedule and the, and, the, and the mode of operation is designed assuming that the trains, when they hit the subway, will run at between 30 and 50 miles per hour. Um, when they experience a communication failure, for example, they have to go at half speed and often as low as 10 miles an hour. Um, and so just like on a freeway, if you have cars or vehicles that expect to be going 50 miles an hour and they're actually going 10, you create bottlenecks. And um, that's something that we've been uh, tracking uh, since we've, we've been able to have the data and we posted that information online where we track the amount of vehicles that are in queue at Embarcadero, which is a key symptom of those bottlenecking and those, um, those backups. Right now, those are kept at low levels because the, the train... Uh, the uh, subway system is not being pushed as hard as it was in, in 2019. Um, and what the, the ATCS, or what, sorry, what the CBTC uh, system will enable us to do is we'll be, it'll enable us, enable us to more uh, reliably achieve those uh, performance targets um, without the, uh, you know, the glitches and computer failures that we see today. Um, the other things that we think that we can address with the project are, are more issues of design. We have, um, by, de by the nature of the Muni Metro system, uh, being its heritage as a streetcar network, we have all of the lines on the surface converging into a single trunk line into the subway. Um, and so because of that fact, sequencing the trains is really important, particularly at the DeBose Junction, at the West Portal Junction, um, and secondarily at 4th and King and some of the other major junctions. The, the CBTC system being able to track those trains um, on the surface uh, would allow the computer system to aid the controllers in central control to perform a sequencing so that the trains are not arriving at the same time, that they're not delaying each other, et, et cetera. So um, the last issue that, that, that this system will obviously address is, is the age of the system. So even if we were to replace the system in kind with, with no new design or no new technology, we would still be achieving benefits just due to the reliability of the individual components. Some of the components are original equipment. We, uh, as, as has been reported in the past, we uh, run our system uh, each morning by loading it on a set of floppy disks onto a, uh, onto a mainframe that's dated, uh, designed from the 1980s, and the equipment is dates from the 1990s. Um, so replacing those components is, is critical, and it, it is, it's very much uh, a... Um, catalyst for the urgency that we treat this project with. So going through to the, to the upgrade project, what we expect to do is um, perform uh, some delicate surgery on the subway, uh, replacing it. That's probably one of the largest challenges, and you'll see that when we go into the phasing, um, that there aren't many systems. Uh, given the age of our system and the age of the technology, we were one of the first generations of, of automatic train control systems when we purchased ours back in the 90s. Um, and so we are kind of in the lead wave of transit agencies who are seeking to replace their aging systems. Um, and so doing that uh, on an active, doing a replacement uh, of an existing system on an active rail line is something that not many agencies have had to um, uh, encounter. And those that have um, generally have pursued a, uh, a program of incremental upgrades with their existing supplier. With this project, um, to manage that risk, uh, we are proposing to, to treat it into, into three main uh, phase components. The first being the pilot phase. 
the pilot phase on this graph runs on the surface uh, in the blue there, uh, basically from the ferry portal um, through Fourth and King. It includes the new central sub or the surface up to the new central subway portal, and then all the way down to the um, MME yard, basically. Um, the idea there is that we, we create a mini system where we've installed the central components, um, the wayside components on that particular part, and then the largest um, component of the pilot phase will be equipping the uh, 219 trains uh, that we have to run with that system. And so what that will enable us to do is, is make sure that we've got a working system, that the trains are able to communicate to the wayside all the way back to the central computer uh, and really validate that it works. And it does that in a low risk environment. Uh, the reason why I call it a low-risk environment is because of the expectation of surface running. Right now, there is no train control system on the surface to speak of. It's first come, first serve when those vehicles arrive at the intersections. So if we run into a situation where we've, um, where we've installed and tested and commissioned the system, and for whatever reason it isn't working, we can shut it off. And then we just revert back to what we're doing right now. So it's kind of no harm, no foul while we work that out, as opposed to the subway where we have a working train control system and switching between those becomes incredibly complex. Um, that being said, the, the thing that we're most eager to do is to, get, is to move into the replacement phase because as I mentioned, the replacement phase is where we go through and, and replace the ATCS with its aging components. Um, and so that's really where uh, you know, the ticking clock ends once we get to the end of that replacement phase. Um, that part is also the most technically complex, um, but it will, it will allow the project team and the, and the vendor to proceed with the confidence um, that they've already completed a, a street running segment, um, and they'll be able to use best practices and lessons learned from that segment and apply that to the subway, which like I said, is a, is a higher risk environment. Once we have a successful uh, cutover from the existing ATCS to the new CBTC, we then look to expand the system to the remaining uh, lines. Um, what expansion does is it allows the trains to remain within the system for the entirety of their journey, which is something that BART, DC, or sorry, not DC, BART, London, um, New York, other metros that have this technology all have because they have the benefit of a dedicated right-of-way. We're trying to confer some of those benefits of a dedicated right-of-way to us uh, by allowing the trains to remain within the CBTC system through the entirety of their journey and check in uh, at the yard. Um, which will alleviate some of the issues with checking in that we have right now at the portals. Um, so these are some of the objectives uh, that, I, that I went over. Like, like I mentioned, um, the existing system has an incredibly uh, robust safety record. We aim to maintain that as one of the chief objectives of this. Um, but the primary benefit that you see here um, is reliability um, and also maintainability. Um, the, the existing system is often maintained and kept running through through what I can only call as heroism from our from our um, from our uh, maintenance technicians. As you see, when there when there's a train um, control system failure, everybody knows about it. It's usually several hours, and it's their dedication that make that uh, you know a two to three hour issue rather than you know an all day issue. Um, we we don't want to result re rely on heroism necessarily to. Uh, as, a, as a strategy to maintain reliability, we want the system to routinely and consistently hit its targets. So um, that's something that we uh, want to have built in. And then that last point is also uh, incredibly important. You know, I, I've mentioned kind of to various people that you know I want to be the last project manager 
uh, for a train control project that SFMTA has. And I'm, what I mean by that is, is that we shouldn't have to wait 20 years like we're doing now and you know, put no investment into the system and then do this big flush um, effort. What we want to do is build in with this contract the ability to continually up this, update the system, not only with software, which is somewhat of a no-brainer in this day and age, but also with hardware so that we're not waiting until the last second until things are getting dire before we uh, switch that out. We also, have the, we also, by doing so, have the benefit of, of making sure that we're getting the latest updates and the latest capabilities that the industry is offering. Uh, and one thing that's clear from our industry outreach is that we definitely have been missing out on a lot of features because we haven't really engaged with them over this 20-year period. Um, so what are some of those things that we haven't been, that we've been missing out on? Um, the, the most obvious one is wireless communications. Um, you know, modern CBTC uses things like Wi-Fi and cellular. Uh, to connect uh, to trains and, and wayside components. Uh, the current system uses uh, a loop cable, which is a very limited communication technique, and therefore the data is limited. There's a lot of uh, limitations on what you can transfer and what you can get. Um, and that obviously leads to the communication failures that we've had that we see in the system. Uh, we also obviously get um, you know, a lot of the goodies that you come to expect with, uh, with modern systems. You get automated data analytics diagnostics, we can check on trains and their health while they're running in service, so we can uh, potentially be more proactive with our MRU deployments. Um, we get uh, spare parts and technical support uh, involved in that as well. Um, the system also provides the promise to integrate more closely with our traffic signals. So particularly on the T-line, that's a place where the investment that we have will, will result in fewer delays um, by better coordination with the traffic signals uh, and ensuring that the trains are arriving on a green light. But equally important to the technology is uh, the commercial aspects that we're working to engage here. Um, and that's what Julie alluded to, where we're taking a little bit more time than we had anticipated to making that and making sure that works out. And part of that has to do with the lessons learned that we've had from the existing train control system as well as other technology systems that SFMTA uh, employs to, to aid transit. We've got a lot of those, and we want to incorporate those into our contract. Those are things like um, ensuring that the, the supplier uh, commits to a set of performance objectives, um, and that when there are failures in the system, that the supplier, through their contract, ha is, is motivated to solve those, is as motivated to solve those problems as the SFMTA staff. And how do you do that? Well, you do that with, with money. Um, and so the building that, that relationship between the supplier and the SFMTA requires a level of, of contractual um, understanding that we haven't really attempted in, in, other, in other contracts. Um, and I'll, I'll give a good example of, of what I mean when we, we, we're working through these, these particular issues with our vision as relates to some of the procurement rules. Um, one of the things in order to achieve that vision is we want to negotiate the support agreement up front. Um, that's something that uh, we haven't done in the past. Typically, you know, with the last train control system and with other um, systems, what we've done is we've uh, done the procurement, and then that gets closed out, and, and the PM finishes their job, and then we, we transition into a maintenance role, and the support agreement is negotiated with the contractor sole source because they're the only game in town. So at that point, they have all of the leverage, and the city has none of the leverage, and so we just kind of take what we get. Um, the, the approach here that we want to take is that we want to, com we want to combine the support 
and the procurement contracts up front so that we're negotiating on those terms while the supplier is in competition with other suppliers so that we can get the most favorable terms for the city, which includes some of these performance-based uh, measurements that, that I'm talking about. The issue is, is that um, you know, there's, this, there's a city ordinance that requires that prior to advertising uh, anything over 10 years, we have to get a Board of Supervisors ordinance. And so that was a whole level that we hadn't anticipated and is an example of the type of delay that we're seeing uh, with this project. We could, of course, you know, structure the contracts to avoid that restriction, um, but we think overall that, that would be, we'd be better off uh, by staying true to the vision and, and pushing through this, um, this challenge and getting the ordinance, um, even if that means taking a little bit more time up front. So speaking of the contracting method, um, one of the other um, segments of this is that we've, we've chosen to uh, segment the supplier and the installer. So when I refer to the supplier, I'm talking about one of about three to four multinational companies that supply train control equipment. Their names are well known. Um, and they're the ones that own the rights to the technology. They're the basically, for all intents and purposes, the, the people who provide the, the train control system. And then that system is installed would be by uh, a local installer, um, which, which amplifies our DBE opportunities. Um, and we've opted to contract with that installer separately, um, primarily because at this stage, there are certain characteristics of the installation that um, being so early in the project, we're not comfortable putting down into a contract because we know that there'd be change orders and, and, and things like that. So by bringing the supplier on first, allowing their engineers to join our team and aid us in the design, we then can put a fully formed installation contract out to bid with the benefit of all of those designs. And so that does, um, that carries with it a little bit additional risk for the SFMTA in the terms that we're now between those two contractors and we're managing that. But it also reduces some of the risk when it comes to design and, and potential change orders um, and allows us um, more importantly to um, use a best value approach with the supplier to make sure that when we're doing the supplier selection that we're not having um, the installation details kind of weigh down that decision that we're basically um, allowing the, uh, or selecting the supplier based on their merits about what type of support services they're going to be offering, about the design of the technology, et cetera. Um, and then secondly, you know, recognizing that the SFMTA, and, and honestly, uh, many American agencies um, don't have the in-house uh, technical expertise to, um, to necessarily be all over the, the different points of evaluation. We've, uh, we include a consultant contract that we'll be bringing before this board. Um, which allows us to take um, you know, international experts who can, who can bring best practices, mostly from Europe and Asia, as well as Canada, uh, to ensure that we are um, doing this design and, and, and proceeding on this project with uh, the best of advice. So moving into the project schedule, um, we are targeting right now uh, an NTP of fall of 23. Basically, uh, we anticipate that it's a, from the point that we issue the RFP, we're looking at about a year um, between having those bids go out, getting those bids, evaluating them, and, and that whole process. So, um, so we're trying to get the RFP out um, towards the, uh, the fall of this year. Um, the NTP would follow about a year after that. We're looking at about 18 months of design, and that's where now the, the supplier has been brought on board. We're able to communicate with our engineers and now start to 
um, really work out a lot of the details that are, that are beyond conceptual. Um, they bring that to the pilot. Um, the pilot phase has its own more detailed design where they look at um, you know, the civil work in, in terms of what, what are they going to dig up and where the wire is going to go, et cetera. Um, and then the main part of the pilot that's, um, there's, two, there's two parts of the pilot that are the pilot, but they're, um, they're also conducive to the rest of the project. One is, is that they're going to have to install the central equipment, right? So that's the servers down, downtown. Um, they're also going to install the wayside equipment in that specific location, so along the Embarcadero and 3rd Street. And then they've also got to fit um, 219 vehicles, uh, LRV4s, with, um, with the train control equipment. So all of that has to be done in the pilot phase, and then we get a working demonstration. Um, and you can see that we don't wait for the pilot phase to end before starting to work on the subway. So as soon as the designers are finished with the pilot, they move on to design the subway. Um, and, we, and we continue that approach um, because we know that the subway replacement will be the, the trickiest and, and the most difficult to pull off. So we move into that phase um, and have that completed by about 2028 is what we're targeting, which roughly corresponds with about the 30th year of life uh, for the ATCS. Um, and then, uh, like I said, similarly, we don't wait for the subway replacement to finish. The designers move on to the various expansions, and then we, we carry out those expansions on each of the lines. At that point, we enter into the support phase. Remember, we're, we're shooting for this to be a single contract, so it doesn't, the contract won't end uh, necessarily at the, um, at the end of the expansion phase. We just move into a different phase of it where we go into the support and the life cycle. The overall budget for the procurement part of it, we're anticipating right now at about 560 million. And um, we, we, our estimate right now is that the support costs will range um, of, of about 10 million a year. So next steps, uh, as I mentioned, uh, we have a draft of the RFP. We have, uh, it's, it's, it's technically sound. We've reviewed it a number of times um, from a technical perspective, but there are some key contractual issues that we're still working through with the city attorneys and the um, procurement folks to make sure that we are achieving our vision in a way that's um, consistent with state, federal, and local procurement rules and guidelines. Um, once we have that RFP finalized, uh, we'll bring it to the board. Um, we anticipate that being in, in the fall. Um, as I mentioned, we have to request a waiver through ordinance to the Board of Supervisors. That's uh, adding uh, a few months to the timeline, um, and the, the goal is to release the RFP um, before the new year. Uh, and with that, that's the end of my presentation, and I am available for questions. Thank you. I know that Director Hinsey has a question. I do, and I'll be brief since I, I, I know this is one of Dr. Hammond's passions, so I'll let him ask. I think most of the questions that thank you, um, Dan and George, for the presentation. And thank you for being with me yesterday on your stay back. Um, and I think you actually covered my question, but one of the questions I had and then I noticed that this is that you went over this in your presentation. You went, you went over that this is going to be a 10-year project, and yeah, so. the installation for the last one, you know, also took a while. So, anyway, you just got that. How? What are your thoughts? You mentioned, you know, maintenance along the way, but yeah, so. uh, how are yeah. your thoughts on ensuring that uh, the uh, system remains current 
until we, from the time it, it comes from ideation to actual installation, since it's going to be taking a while. We're going to be a decade or eight, wow. eight, years, eight, eight to ten years, we'll see. Uh, th this is absolutely something that we experienced with the current system. It was designed in the late 80s and installed in the late 90s. So it was already 10-year-old um, technology. Uh, Dan, sorry, can you... I have headphones on in the WebEx meeting. Oh, sorry, sorry. Uh, it's okay. I'm... Hello? Yeah, I'm, 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 bra I'm breaking I'm for the internet. Everything okay? <laughs> uh, DT, we're picking up. Corwin, we're picking up your mic. Can you please mute yourself? Thank you. My apologies, Colin. <laughs> so, Dan, I know this was one of the most important lessons learned driving the project. Can can you answer Director Hinzi's question? Yes. Um, so that is a chief concern that we had. Obviously, with given the length of the project and the and the the way that technology improves over time, we don't want to put ourselves in a position where we've just completed this brand new system and only to find that it's out of date. So within the procurement phase of the project, we're building in specific milestones where um, the design could be reopened in a limited basis to account for, among other things, regulatory changes, um, changes in operating system, uh, and other technological changes, as well as to take advantage of the, um, of the uh, supplier's current offerings. The other thing that we're requiring that we're, that we're planning to include in the RFP is um, that the suppliers need to provide us with a project product roadmap, uh, which says this is the product that they're planning to offer our, our city, uh, and this is how this is where it is and within its life cycle. Um, is it is it an older product? Are they planning to replace it? Uh, what is that 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 um, cadence? And then we see where we fit in with that. That'll probably be part of the negotiations. And the goal the goal through that will be to make sure that we emerge the procurement side. Uh, with the latest offering of the of the most servant service proven version of their of their system, and then moving into support, we would then follow their product roadmap um, and maintain the system and update the system according to that life cycle. All right, and then Jonathan, if you're if you're, I was assuming you're here for this item. Um, could you tell us a little bit more in detail about the funding and were we? dependent on any of the funding that was in CIP plus I know the geo bond had I'm going to misstate the number here but I think it's 10 million allocated for this project so I know we'll have to backfill that but to what degree are we dependent on the CIP plus for this yeah so so two things um one, as Dan's laid it out, there, there are multiple phases and we're planning for the cash flow of each of those phases. Um, one thing that turned out to be good that I gave during my update was the fact that we got that significant um, TIRCP state grant award transit and inner city rail program. In the five-year CIP, we assumed an award of around 80 million, but we got 116. So we beat our revenue expectations. Part of that grant is for the train control system. So we'll have more cash revenue sooner um, to cover the cost of the project. The other element in the overall funding plan for the project um, is, you know, as Dan said, we're replacing the pre-existing um, advanced train control system. So we do have federal formula funds that, you know, would have gone to train control as part of its, its cycle of replacement. 
That said, it's, it's for replace in kind. Those are state of good repair dollars, and the first phase has to do with the pilot on the surface and the expansion. So between the state grant, um, between some money we anticipate getting from the state um, between February and November, we can meet the cash flow um, for the project to keep it on schedule. In addition, in the five-year CIP that, that you adopted in April, we accounted for the five years of cash flow required for this project to keep it on the schedule that you saw. So we'll be another phase is raising the funds for the project that will follow the individual phases. Um, but in the way that Dan's laid it out, success always leads to our ability to secure additional dollars. But the immediate phases are funded. The work that Dan's doing is immediately funded. The state grant that we got will continue to meet the cash flow requirements of the project. And um, for the five years that we have in the current CIP, we've provided the revenues necessary to keep the project um, on schedule. All right. Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you. Director Hemminger. Thank you, Madam Chair. Uh, and, and I think these will take the form of more of comments uh, with, a, with a suggestion at the end than questions. Um, you know, first of all, I certainly appreciate getting the, the briefing, um, although uh, it seems like every time we get a briefing, the schedule slips a year. So I'm wondering if we should maybe suspend briefings and maybe <laughs> that would arrest the slide. Um, actually, I want to propose the opposite. Uh, I, I also react, I think, a little bit to the idea of a pilot, and, and I think I understand the motivation for it. Um, and for those of you who weren't around at the time, when the current system was installed, we had what was called the Muni Meltdown, and it was like a full-on catastrophe <laughs> and took us, I don't know how many months, probably years, just to recover from that first impression. Um, so these projects, in my experience, are very high risk. Um, you know, BART, before the current procurement that they're going through, had a total bust. They had to throw a project out um, because they were trying to use this technology from Desert Storm, and they, they just couldn't make it work. Um, and one other thing to say, I think, is that uh, with the Central Subway and uh, Van S, most of us sort of arrived late in those two dramas. Um, and with this project, and I think this project is up in that area uh, in terms of size, scale, scope, budget, um, this one's on us is how I would look at it. Um, and I think we have a very strong obligation uh, to our successors to get this project started off on the right two feet. Um, and my suggestion would be that we fashion some way for this board uh, to be more actively involved in overseeing the project. Um, we eventually had to do that with the electrification project for Caltrain on the peninsula. I think it did some good. It's a way of daylighting uh, issues, of showing to the public that we're aware we've got problems and we're managing them. Um, it would require a level of detail that I think is a couple steps beyond what you're showing us in terms of scope, schedule, and budget. Uh, we need to see something on schedule that can show us the critical path because that's really where you want to orient your resources. 
So, Madam Chair, my suggestion, I mean, one way to do this is for the full board to receive like a quarterly report. I, I'm not sure the full board is the best idea. It could be setting up an ad hoc committee of a few interested board members. Um, I'm obviously interested, um, but others might be as well. Uh, again, as a way for the staff to have a sounding board, um, so before they're really on prime time, coming to us with change orders and all the rest of it. They have somebody that they could bounce ideas off of. Um, but it's also a way, I think, to provide transparency. And very often with large capital projects, the only time the public hears about the project is when there's a problem. Um, and they certainly should hear about the problems. But more often than not, there's plenty of other news, good news, uh, to share with the public. And you need a forum to do that. Um, so that would be my suggestion for this uh, project. I, I certainly hope we can do better than the schedule we've got, but it may be that this is the hand that's dealt us. Uh, but I believe it's important for us, uh, and again, as I said earlier, for our successors, uh, that we give them sort of a better chance than we got um, for uh, the, the two projects that we got involved in late. So that's my uh, suggestion for what it's worth, and uh, I, I hope uh, we can consider it. Through the chair, if I may. Yes, please. Director Heminger, I would warmly welcome uh, stronger engagement from the board uh, in the form of not just oversight, but also helping us to clear some obstacles. Both the Central Subway and the Venice projects were doomed from the very beginning in the scoping and procurement decisions that were made 15 years ago. We're still trying to recover from some of those procurement decisions, including basic issues like choosing the lowest bid cost rather than the best value for the contractors. So, there, so another thing where I think this board could be very helpful is, is in helping not just the SFMTA, but the entire city modernize some of its business practices so that we don't run into the problems that we ran into a decade later on Central Subway and Van Ness. Uh, we are certainly eager as a team to modernize all of our business practices, but we, we're, we will run into some obstacles uh, as we do that. I only implied, and that is, as painful as it was, we've got some good lessons uh, that we learned on those two projects. And as luck would have it, we've got a third project to try to apply <laughs> them to. Now, this project is, is a weird one. Uh, I'm sure there's a better word to use. But the fact is, this is not going out and buying a bunch of guardrail. Uh, this is a technology and software project. And so often, those could be the most difficult to manage. And those are the ones that the government procurement process is least able uh, to mesh with um, because they require you really to do some different things and to try to move some risk around. Uh, so look, uh, if that's making lemonade out of a lemon, I, I vote for the lemonade uh, because while, the, while those lessons are fresh in our minds, uh, as I said, we can give this project a better, a better start. Thank you. I would agree with that. I, I mean, it, it just seems to me that where technology has gone, that there's so many better ways we can build this going forward so that we don't have to have a, a project that takes us long the next time around. I mean, everything's in the cloud. I mean, everything's, you know, sensors. I mean, it seems to me that we can build a better train control system, hopefully, that 
in the future, you just flip a switch or you, you, on your computer, put in an automation network. So I just, whatever we can do to have a group of us to get together and talk around what's the latest, greatest in technology and what are the things that we can do um, to ensure that the next iteration of this is a much better project, I think is, a, is, is the best approach. Um, obviously, we I mean, it's, it's disappointing that it's gonna take so long. <laughs> um, but I'm optimistic because technology is constantly changing and maybe, maybe we'll be able, because of technology, to best that, that process. I know getting in the subway is a little more complicated, <laughs> but the actual technology itself, we might be able to expedite, I think, so hopeful. Any other directors have any comments? Uh, Director Kahina. I just wanted to thank you for your presentation. Um, I completely endorse um, Director Hemminger's um, suggestion as well. I think having a working group or a subgroup of, of the board would be wonderful to, to help shepherd this through the project and create more transparency about some of the obstacles that we see. Um, I think it's really great that you've already integrated a lot of the our you know, learned lessons from previous projects by thinking about how the procurement process will, will unfold, right? And how to ensure that we have some sort of relationship with our suppliers um, so that we don't, you know, rely on single source um, bids for maintenance. So like I, I congratulate you for thinking that piece of it through because it is those details that really put us into difficult positions once we're ready to not just implement something but also maintain it. And so I, you know, I, I applaud you for thinking about that and thinking that piece of it through. Um, the only piece I, I would probably um, add to, to the mix is that um, I would really want to learn more about how we're going to ensure that we're um, integrating equity through our procurement processes. And so understanding, you know, as we're, this is a pretty large project and it is one of those projects that I think we want to be proud to, to support. Um, moving forward, and so I think ensuring that um, in that RFP we are, you know, integrating language around equity and ensuring that we're supporting um, local businesses that may have more of a challenge to to bid um, in these sorts of larger projects. Um, creating avenues for that would be great to learn more about. Um, so I don't know if that's already been thought about um, just yet, or if that's something that's going to come up soon. It, th thank you for that question. It is something that we um, thought. A lot about upfront, in in part because the suppliers themselves don't really lend themselves to to small businesses. As Dan mentioned, these are multinational um, companies. One of the benefits of separating out the installation from the supplier is the installation can really maximize uh, small business and DBE participation. So, even within the supplier contract there will be a, a small business goal and it'll be focused on things like um, contract processing and, and, and things that are even within the supplier side of the world possible to subcontract, but that will be a relatively small goal given the nature of the technology. And then on the installer side, as well as on the consultant support side, will be able to um, have a much stronger uh, DBE portion. And, and Julie, when, when we come back to you for the, for the RFP, one of the things that we've been thinking of as a project is, is that these contracts, those three contracts that we've showed up on the screen, 
those are a fan, those are all part of the same project. So we kind of tr we're treating them within the project as a family of of contracts, not looking at them each individually. And we'd be happy to share that as a kind of an early topic for the committee to review to make sure that the board is comfortable with the percentages we're pursuing. That'd be great. Thank you. Any other comments from directors? Seeing them, we'll move on to public comment. This is time for members of the public who would like to comment on our item number 11, train control system, 12. <laughs> item 12. Um, thank you again, uh, Chair Gwyneth Borden and members, Alita Dupree for the record. She and her I'm going to talk about train control. Can't call myself an expert on train control. Uh, can't call myself an expert on aircraft engines either, but I have standing and I'm going to speak. I, I think it's important that we make train control approachable and understandable. And I have some experience with train control having used the L and the seven lines of the legendary and historic New York City subway, which I'm sure some of you have seen and maybe even used. Uh, and once you experience communications-based train control, uh, you don't want to go back to the old way. And so as I think about uh, being able to apply this to the street running sections is very important. It's kind of like, uh, bring in airplanes uh, into airports through air traffic control if you ever do plane spotting and listen to ATC. And there's plenty of videos about plane spotting and you can hear about various separations of aircraft by size due to uh, factors such as wake turbulence. And so uh, this has to be approachable for the public to understand. Uh, I don't think it should take this long. And uh, I hope we can sell it uh, to the Board of Supervisors. I, I don't know what their appetite is for this kind of project. Uh, I fear they may say no. So I think we have to have a, a backup plan with, these, uh, uh, with this um, contracting so that we can go forward uh, because we are uh, a muni, an independent muni. Uh, I, I would hope that the supervisors would say yes uh, because I believe it is essential for us to build a system that is more reliable and user-friendly. I use a subway sometimes, and I want a better subway. We have to make our plans and make it happen. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Are, are there any other speakers in the audience? Seeing none, are there callers in the line? We do have one speaker in the queue. Please proceed, speaker. I am that one speaker. Hi, uh, good afternoon, commissioners. My name is Alex Landsberg, Research and Advocacy Director with the San Francisco Electrical Construction Industry. Uh, thank you for having this presentation. Thank you for this update. I think it's absolutely important for us to see uh, how this process is unfolding and make sure that we don't run into many of the other problems that we've uh, that we've seen in our infrastructure uh, upgrade processes uh, or uh, infrastructure development. What I want to specifically focus on is the contracting piece. Uh, uh, in this upgrade project. I think one thing that we've seen over and over again is that the more you fracture these contracts, uh, the more problems that you have in actually executing them. Uh, what we've learned from housing development is as you load up on soft costs, as you load up on, on management and consultants, you end, up, um, you end up creating problems on the back end and running your costs up uh, and, and making implementation more difficult. In terms of achieving equity goals and, uh, and outcomes for this, I want to 
really underscore the importance of tying the construction, tying the installation into the citywide uh, or uh, or whatever other project labor and community workforce agreement that, that you all are negotiating with the building trades. I think it's absolutely important uh, that we uh, that we ensure that the um, uh, that the systems themselves are installed by skilled and trained technicians that uh, to the maximum extent possible that we have electrical contractors doing this work because they are the ones that are most skilled and most capable of actually seconds. pulling it off uh, successfully and uh, on time and on budget. And in achieving our contracting equity goals that we really look toward emphasizing local contracting capacity, which we have no shortage of uh, in town to be able to do this sort of complexity. In fact, uh, two of the largest electrical contractors in the country, uh, Cupertino Electric, Rosenden Electric, have offices here. Um, uh, they are members of, a, of our San Francisco Electrical Contractor Association. Morrow Meadows is another Th thank major you. contractor thank that you has the capacity for that. to Your do it. Your time is up. Sorry, sir. <laughs> thank you. Moderator, are there any additional callers in the queue? I'm checking. It does appear we have one. I'm just waiting for them to confirm. Actually, no, we have no additional callers in the queue. That closes public comment. If there are no additional comments here, we can move on to our next item. Places you on item number 13, authorizing the director to execute modification number one to SFMTA contract number 1311R, job order contract for federally funded projects with Yerba Buena Engineering and Construction to increase the contract amount by an additional $2.5 million for a total for a new total contract amount of $7.5 million to perform additional work related to infrastructure and facility enhancement and maintenance projects with no increase to the duration of the contract. Good afternoon, Madam Director and Directors. Uh, my name is June Park. I'm the acting uh, deputy of contract admin for Capital Programs and Construction. Uh, I prepared a slideshow to kind of explain a little bit about job order contracting. For San Francisco Admin Code 6.62 Job Order Contracting System, JOC, provides for an indefinite quantity contract with a predetermined set of bid items that are assigned on a periodic or task order basis for the performance of maintenance, repair, and minor construction projects. This job contract performs work in an efficient and expeditious manner, eliminating the time and expense of the usual design, bid, build, contracting process. Currently, SFMTA, PUC, Public Utilities Commission, and um, Public Works utilize a program developed, implemented, and supported by a consultant with the master agreement from public works to manage job contracts. So for this contract, on February 19, 2019, board adopted resolution 19219-018, authorizing award of contract number 1311R, job order contract for federally funded project to Yerba Bueno Engineering and Construction for an amount not to exceed five million, for a term not to exceed five years. As authorized under SF Admin Code Section 6.62F, this mod number one will increase the contract amount by an additional 2.5 million for a total of 7.5 million 
without extending the term of the contract. To date, we have expended about $4.3 million under this contract. SFMTA has identified additional infrastructure and facility enhancement and maintenance projects that will exceed the current $5 million contract amount. Uh, currently, this is kind of small, but uh, I wanted to kind of point out this job contract is used for minor uh, maintenance repairs, basically all over San Francisco, for removing and relocating existing uh, axle counter to testing, inspecting, and remove and replace. Usually, typically, when we reach about 90% capacity of the contract amount, we issue a new job contract. And we were about to do that, but then the problem, with, uh, the problem we're facing is the job program uses the software developed by uh, consultants. So these bid items that are thousands of bid items that we choose from paints to concrete wall to doors to anything you could think of, everything under the sun, there's a software that is developed, maintained, and supported by a consultant and that is inputted into the contract bid documents. Well, the current contract uh, that PW, SFMTA, PUC, and PW uses the consultant, uh, citywide consultant contract uh, managed by PW, and that contract is about to expire. So they are uh, going through an awarding process right now. The problem is the the company that's going to be awarded is not the same company. So when we get the new uh, award, we need to update all of our bid documents to have the uh, new software and new implementation. So uh, we cannot wait for, these, uh, for this contract. So we need to right now increase our current contract by $2.5 million, which will allow us to continue serving the needs until the new contract can be awarded. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, directors, do you have any questions? Director Heminger. I'll move the item. <laughs> All right, is there a second? Second, but I think we didn't need to take up a comment. <laughs> no, no, I'm just gonna make, take up a comment now. Second, yeah. <laughs> Uh, anybody, any members of the public, there's no one in the room moving to the dais, so anyone on the line who'd like to comment on item number three? We have one speaker in the queue. Perfect. Hi, I'm actually not wanting to talk on item 13. I wanted to talk on item 12, but for some reason it cleared my hand before I could talk, so is sure. it okay if I talk on item 12 now? That's fine. Okay, thank you. I'm a training to be an electrician here in San Francisco, and I've been really working forward to working on the train control project that item 12 was about. And I'm just curious if this is gonna be 100% union and if it's gonna be covered by a PLA labor agreement. So thank you. Thank you. Does that complete your comments? Yeah. All right, are there any additional callers in the queue for item 13 or was or people that were accidentally cleared for item 12? There are no additional speakers. Seeing none, we'll close public comment and we have a motion and second. 
You please call the roll. On the motion to approve, Director Kahina. Aye. Kahina, aye. Director Heminger. Aye. Heminger, aye. Director Hinsey. Aye. Hinsey, aye. Chair Borden. Aye. Borden, aye. Thank you. The motion passes. And that adjourns the, this meeting. I'll next see you all in September, right? Bye. Yes. Thank you.